Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. Chapter 311 The War Planet Slatmert, Neo-Sapient near Neo-Sapient space border. Two weeks after Case Omaha. Three months after initial red dots in Hessler's system. The mess hall was full of chattering, the clattering of cutlery on dishes, the clink of glasses, and here and there, laughter. It was a quick build structure, put up by ants almost as an afterthought, a place for beings to eat and relax for a little while. Trinidad made jokes and puffed up their cigarettes underneath the air conditioner's filters. Mantid talked about the last drop and how it was better or worse than this one. Rygelian females talked and sang as they ate, their conversations often about the beauty of an oiled brown feather. The Tulkin stared around them at everyone talking and laughing. They were three days into a hard drop. Task Force Angry Duck, 6th Army, V-Corps Mixed, and 1st Tulkin Marine Divisions. 1st Regiment had barely arrived in time to hold a wave after wave of precursor metal from overwhelming the planet. Rather than leave, when the math said they kept bringing in additional waves while the previous forces retreated. They were making a heavier use of drop troops, going for the ground pound to secure the victory. Space was still contested with Task Force Andrew Duck joined by Task Force Black Hammer the latter following the precursor vessels when they ran for it. Ground was still anyone's game. The world was rich with iridium and lithium. Gravity wells spun crystals with atmospheric doping making the material a hard salt resource, which meant whoever wanted it had to take it. The precursor autonomous war machines were a mix of Type 1, Type 2 and Type 3 hybrids. A nasty mix with a whole passel of tricks up their sleeves. The Talcon were on the first off-world combat deployment. They were doing well, up to the standards of Confederate Space Force. The casualties, huh. Most of all, they knew when to call in for close air, artillery or infantry support when things started to get dicey. A single Talcon came into the mess hall and the rest of the Talcon went quiet. The fur on his ears, around the tip of his muzzle, around his eyes, were all silver. He walked with a limp, one eye and one ear with black wall steel replacements. The Tolkien went back to eating, quietly, as the new arrival went through the chow line and got a tray of food before moving over to sit with a handful of Terran descent human officers sitting at a table. Colonel Lissick nodded to the Tolkien officer who nodded back and went to clearing his tray. The human noted that the Tarkin's fur had a slick plastic look of someone who'd just gone through the showers to wash away hours of suit sweat. While the Tarkin was eating, the other officers made small talk, mostly about the conditions of their units and how well the fight was going. Finally, the Tarkin officer pushed back the tray and picked up his long stalk of greenish-red plant to nibble on. 
How is it looking out there, Lieutenant? Colonel Lissuk asked. Looks like we've got them on the run, the Tarkin said. His voice was rough and coarse, like he'd been chewing on gravel all day. Third armors rolling on drop points the AWMs are using, pushing them back to the graveyard. My brigade is rotating back from some R&R. The colonel nodded. The graveyard was where a dozen of the larger precursors that were able to come into the atmosphere had landed and then had been disabled by General Trucker's heavy tanks and atomic strikes from the 8th Infantry during the initial landing of V-Corps. The dead AWMs were still spitting out smaller war machines, but now there was the opportunity to push them back into the graveyard, and then the Harvester-class AWMs could be handled. How's the weather? General Haroko asked, settling down her glass of juice. She was in charge of a regiment of fast attack craft strikers and, like most pilots, almost obsessed with the weather. Starting to cool off, had some bad black rain yesterday. Lots of heavy metal in it, the Tarkin said. Wasn't too bad on the way back. The Rygerian nodded, closing her eyes and bringing up a command console with the implant and ordering the mechanics to double-check the radiation shielding of the strikers. How's our hosts? The sole one-star general asked. He knew the answer so that his staff had given him, but it was always good to hear it from another source. Plus, the young Talcan male was a newly minted officer. Sure, he could fight, he could inspire his troops, but leadership was more than yelling battle cries and pulling the trigger. Still laying low, the Talcan said. It's all too much for them still. They're females and young are fragile, rock or amused, opening her eyes. Something I can empathize with. The male Talcott nodded. How are your men? The general asked, keeping his voice mild. Morale was a little wobbly when those city-sized harvesters landed, but it's firm back up now, the Talcott said. We've taken pretty low casualties, all things considered. How are the new suits? Colonel Karikataki, 9th Maintenance Brigade, asked mildly. Still shaking out, new psychic shielding makes everyone's teeth tingle, the Talcott said. He shook his head. Funny that I've fought most of the Tarkin walls with the bare minimum shielding. Type 3s push psychic assaults harder than the other two, General Hararkar said. She tapped one black talon against the side of the glass. I'm just glad that you are as resistant to psychic attacks as we are. It's rare. The Tarkin officer nodded. He finished off the stalk of vegetable and nodded to everyone. Gentlemen, ladies, he said, standing up. He gathered his tray and went to the wash rack, clearing his tray before putting it into the shelving where it could be taken back and washed. He thought it was funny that in an age of nanites, mass reclamation systems and robotics, washing pots, pans and dishes were still done by hand in the Terran military. Soldiers saluted as he made his way through the firebase, hastily constructed over the last two days while the Lanaklan military forces had been refitted to be able to fight next to the Terrans without the danger of the Terran weapons damaging land-to-land vessels by the mere act of firing. He was walking behind a pair of Terran infantrymen, both of whom were mostly biological, but he saw it. Three green dots at the base of their skull, subdermal LEDs that were roughly an inch wide, a quarter inch thick, with rounded ends, all flashed, the bottom one turned red, then the middle one lit up amber, followed by the top one turning amber. Soldiers, stand fast, 
the Tarkin snapped, hurrying up to them. The two infantrymen stopped, looking down at the Tarkin officer and going to attention. Yes, sir, the one on the left asked. Right now, are you suffering headaches or any other strange symptoms? The Tarkin asked. Both of them looked at each other and then down. No, sir, they both said. I need you both to come with me to medical, the Tarkin said. May we ask why, Lieutenant Vuxton? The one on the right asked after checking the Tarkin's rank and name tag. Your son's telltales just went off green, the Tarkin said. Come with me. Both men put their hands on the back of their necks and nodded. Buxton hurried down the passageway, stopping three times more when he saw Terence with the same thing on their son's telltales. Some soldiers were still green, some were flashy green. Buxton activated his comlink, tuning into the command channel. Base, get me medical, Buxton snapped. The comlink rang twice before it answered. Captain Davis Kalakatek, 27th Med, the woman answered. Lieutenant Buxton, 1st Tarkin, I've got nine Terran soldiers with blown out suds. He waved at three other humans, stopping them. He glanced at the back of the necks. Twelve now, we're under attack. It's happening all over the base. There's a general recall for all forces not engaged with the enemy to pull back. The medical officer said, her voice tight with stress. Should I bring them into medical? Fuxton asked. Negative. Tell them to return to the must area, the doctor said. Medcom out. Buxton out, he said. He turned to the gathered soldiers. Medcom wants you to return to your barracks or master area unless you get instructions otherwise, he said. They nodded and Buxton noted that their eyes were glowing amber. He filed the information away. He'd seen it before, during the war. Humans' eyes had an often a faint glow to them, but this was different. Yes, sir, they said. The small knot of them dissolved as they hurried to the garrison areas. Buxton tapped on his comlink again. General Logwaks Tumbunta, First Alcan, the human voice said. Sir, this is Lieutenant Buxton, he answered, hurrying towards the garrison area. What do you need, Lieutenant? the general asked. We're under attack. Suds are going one red to amber across the entire base. Have all the human members of First Alcan checked? Buxton said squeezing the blast door that was shutting. Hang on, the general said. Buxton noticed that the normally laconic Terran Space Force Marines general sounded irritated by the entire world existing. All right, Buxton, I need you to gather up all Tarkin officers and meet me in the briefing room seven, the general said. Don't frick around brushing your fur. You get straight there, Marine. Understood? Yes, sir. The comling shut off. Another surprise. Usually, the general was a stickler for procedure. He hurried faster. General Papatonis wants third armor to break contact and fall back to log base tempo. Trucker's radio man, Sergeant Sato, called out. Trucker sped over the side, keeping the TC's gun on target, ripping armor from the entire side of the precursor machine. The quad barrel found something inside the machine and its side blew out, even as the top bulged and shed armor. Tell the general we're engaging with the enemy, Trucker yelled out. Fat boy, hit that hill. Three shots. There's a crawler behind it. Bolo, mutton chop, go to rapid fire on your hellballs at this angle. Second regiment, third brigade, hot cycle your indirect fire forges. Dump the slash. He knew that if they disengaged, it would allow the flow of scrap metal flowing out of the graveyard to overwhelm the 1st Lanaclan Armored Division 
through the sheer weight of numbers. It would allow the heavier machines who had led their attack with an orbital strike into a carefully laid minefield to break out and bypass log base Tembo and log base Shi, which would let them flank Bolo Unit XXIX TCSF 4721FGY, aka Fergie, with enough force that they might be able to disable or even destroy the self aware supertech. His mental image of the battlefield shifted, and he suddenly knew that elements of the 528th Infantry were about to be cut off by precursors on the other side of the hills from him. The hills were heavy with iron and granite, with a river in the middle that was steaming from the heat being dumped into it by the battle just over the curvature of the planet. Little boy, pink pearl, steady lad, fire for effect, wool shake and bake, on these coordinates, Trucker shouted over his open comlink. Give him six shots of shake and bake and then hit him with the scoop of Rocky Road. The three tanks didn't even ask questions or double check. Their indirect fire crew member loading the fire plan Trucker had handed them nearly a minute ago and hitting execute. The general is insisting, the Comotech yelled. Tell the general that we regretfully inform him that we're engaged with the enemy. Trucker yelled, all night long, get in tight, on Black Betty, they're about to lose their apers strip. Jerry Ferry hit that hulk again, there's some clanker crabs in it, but hold surfer, psycho your main gun, your compression chamber's whistling loud enough for me to hear it all the way over here. Unnoticed by Trucker, or anyone else in third armored, the LED splashed three times, and went back to a stack of red burning coldly beneath his skin. A armorer who watched Trucker's commands ripple through the hologram in front of him. How the battle shifted around him, as if the Terran general knew what was going to happen. He watched as the general kept updating and firing fire plans that were executed sometimes up to two minutes later with devastating effect. His second most high had fainted when Trucker had ordered one of the massive bolos riding his flank to fire into the sky. For a bellow to drop down out of the clouds, land interference, and straight into the firepower, the bolo had gutted the bellow, and it had crashed into the graveyard. The way Trucker orchestrated the battlefield and estimated the enemy actions had proven too much for Aamaru's second-in-command. Aamaru himself watched it with interest. His own men were engaging with the light units blowing from the graveyard, trying to reach log base Hota. General Trucker has fired a firing maneuver plan for your approval, Great Most High. The Terran digital sentience of reconstruction of the famous and experienced Terran armor commander by the name of Torgrath informed him. The battle is moving too fast for me. What is your opinion? Aamaru asked. I question parts of it, as I have, but General Trucker appears to be a gifted commander. I would recommend following it. Torgath said, his voice stuffy. Then make it so. There was silence for a second. Firing point defense systems, boss, sir. Don't know, Takor started to say. The point defense guns opened fire just above the crest of the hill a mile away. The precursor striker vehicles popped over the hill just in time to run into a full barrage that tore them apart in a furious set of explosions. Well, I... Oh, Takor said. Trunker... General Trucker, a armorer chuckled as a set of Terran strikers rolled up just overhead. 
their guns hammering and rockets firing from beneath their stubby wings. This felt like a properly run war. How are you feeling? the Terran female asked. Moab Walker was proud at himself that he didn't flinch back from her. He had thought that the amber and red light from the eyes was just from the warbogs of cybernetics. But this Terran female had biological eyes and they glowed a warm amber. I'm slightly dizzy, Mo Walker said. That's the sedative, she said. Your surgery went well. Surgery? Mo Walker asked. The last thing he remembered was sitting in his fighting position and laughing. When you came in, we saw you had suffered some microstrokes. Recursive scream exposure, the Terran said. We had to replace two of your eyes. We tried to save them, but uh, the blood vessels had rupted throughout the entire structure. Oh, Mo Walker said. That explained the two black sections in his vision. He lifted up a glass. May I have some more juice? Sure, the Terran smiled that Mo Walker was proud of himself for not flinching. She handed him the glass. There's a psych tech coming to talk to you. We are worried about the shell shock or combat fatigue. Mo Walker nodded, feeling slightly ashamed. Hey now, the Terran said. You did good for what you were facing. Really? Mo Walker said. He felt almost desperate for her approval. Absolutely. You're outnumbered, outgunned, and under heavy psychic assault, she said. She patted his upper right arm. Almost 300 of your fellow troops survived with you. Oh, Mo Walker said quietly as the nurse left. His herd had been nearly 5,000 strong. Talcan Forge Worlds, it's been almost two weeks. How much longer do you think they'll be gone? I think follows. Ackletack, free flight. Not that long. Sure they'll be back. Nothing follows. Tinvaru gripping hands. I'm letting the Terrans still in the Tinvara system know that we're offering them shelter and refugee status. Nothing follows. Talcan Forge Worlds. Same here. Nothing follows. Ackletack, free flight. Can't imagine doing anything else. Nothing follows. Talcan Forge Worlds. Can't believe that the Unified Council thought that striking terror would stop them. Nothing follows. Ackletack, free flight. If anything, it'll drive them crazy. Nothing follows. Tinveru gripping hands. Again. Nothing follows. End of chapter. Chapter 312. The War. Buxton's implant pinged twice before he answered it. He was outside the buildings of the Ford Operations Base, sitting on the stack of expended rocket tubes that were waiting for their turn to go into reclamation systems. He was watching all the humans run around, still working, still doing their jobs, despite the fact that it had been confirmed that there was no immortality anymore. Lieutenant Buxton here, he said, touching his implant in case anyone came up and tried to talk to him. Lieutenant, this is General Kodraka's aide, Major Delicus, the woman's voice said. I read you, Major, Buxton said, looking around and wondering why the general would want something to call him. The general wants to speak with you and someone else. According to the FOB system, he's only like ten feet from you, but for some reason he's not answering his data link, the Major said. Who? Buxton asked, looking around. All he could see was a handful of ordnance troops beyond a sign that said no EM area that ran a hollow fence around the ammunition that they were fabbing up. Buxton had been startled to find out that some ammunition required two or three different nanoforges to run up a single round. 
which is why humans still devoted munition storage in their vehicles and weapons. Stop, Sergeant Casey. He's only got one eye and wears a patch, the Major said. Buxton looked and saw him over at the two massive nanoforges, watching artillery shells being run off. I see him. He's in a load of frame. Get him and bring him to the briefing room three, the Major said and cut the link. Buxton sighed and put his hands on the side of the expended rocket pod so that he could push himself off and drop to the ground. His suit was undergoing maintenance. Again. In some ways, he missed his old suit. It was a bit clunky. The 40mm launcher never quite worked right, but at least it was fast, tough, and did the job. The new ones was heavier, felt slower, and seemed to spend three times as much time in the hands of the maintenance tanks. Wuxton headed past the gate of the hollow fence, seeing Data Link disabled, float up in his vision as soon as he crossed the gate. Staff Sergeant Casey was checking the rounds as they left the nanoforge before they went through the paint sprayer. He was standing next to a large Trianidad, talking as Lieutenant Voxton walked up. See, any bubbling in the world, the round is no good, and you send it to the reclaimer, Dominguez, Casey was saying. These rounds are wet print calls with dry print casings and prop charges. Yes, Sergeant, the big Trianidad said. What about that one? Good catch, the world is twisted right there, which means that the nanoforge is starting to run hot. He looked up and saw Buxton. Can I help you, sir? He asked, noting the lieutenant bars and Buxton's lapels. General Kodraka's aide wants to see us both, Sergeant, Buxton said. I knew this was coming, the Terran sighed. He turned back to the Trianidad. Nikolakuk to help you. Make sure he knows where his rifle is, he turned back to Buxton. Privates, am I right? Buxton just nodded as Casey moved away from the inspection line. Well, Best go see what the plotters want, the Terrence said. Wuxton followed him to the edge of the hollow fence and waited while he exited the frame and grabbed his rifle from the carrying slot. They started heading towards Operation 6, where briefing room 3 was located. Any idea what they want, sir? the Terran asked. Wuxton noticed that his eyes weren't glowing while the majority of everyone else's were either red or amber. No clues, Sergeant, Wuxton said. As they moved towards a group of power armor troops exiting their armor, an argument suddenly turned violent. One of the power armor troops lunged forward and attacking the other Terran. Sergeant Casey rushed over, grabbing them both by the collars and their adaptive camouflage and putting them apart. At ease, that shit, Casey yelled. Both troops turned and looked at him and just stared back. What's the problem? Both Terrans looked at each other, then at Star Sergeant Casey then at Buxton, who was moving up behind Casey. She took one of my boots, the other Terran said. Buxton suddenly realized they were both female. I did not, you blind heifer, the other one yelled back. Staff Sergeant Casey shook them both by their collars, yanking them around. That's enough, control yourselves, he yelled at them. He pushed them both away. I get it, tempers are hot. If the boots are that important, then both of you take them off right now. Excuse me, Staff Sergeant, but we're both warrant officers. The one on the right who had complained about the boots sneered. Buxton noted that both the Terran's eyes were bright red. If you're gonna act like children, I'll treat you like children, Staff Sergeant Casey said, turning to face her. Take off your goddamn boots or so help me electronic Vishnu, I'll knock you out and take them, Casey said, staring down at her. 
Both of them opened their mouths and flinched from whatever expression was on Casey's face that Buxton couldn't see. Their eyes suddenly cooled to amber. Both knelt down and removed their boots. Casey turned and tossed them to an armor maintenance tech. Throw those in the reclaimer! Yes, Sergeant, a private, a talcum like Buxton, said. My feet are gonna get wet, the one on the left said. My socks are getting wet, the one on the right said. I'm an officer! Tough, you're out here fighting like goddamn privates behind a strip club, and now you think you can hide behind being an officer. You're lucky I don't just put you on report, Casey snapped. He turned to Vuxton. If you'll continue to allow me to escort you, sir. Come along, Sergeant, Vuxton said, leading the way again. They were ten paces away before Casey said anything. Suds blows out and suddenly everyone's acting like jackasses, he muttered. Making power armor troop officers was a mistake. They moved around the chow hall, a boxy, armored building, and headed towards the building. Can I ask a question, Sergeant? Buxton asked. It's against my religion. That's why my eye hasn't been replaced, the Terran said. Buxton snorted. You knew I was going to ask that, Casey nodded. Everyone does. There was silence to the briefing room three, which had a pair of armed MPs standing outside of it, one on each side of the door. Inside was General Krodaka, as well as half a dozen other officers, all of whom Buxton recognized as part of V-Corps and the 7th Army. Have a seat, Lieutenant. Take a seat, Sergeant. One of the Terran females, who Buxton's implant ID'd as Major Dalekas, said, pointing to the two empty seats. Do I need my JAG representative? Casey asked, sitting down. No, we just need a bit of confirmation about a few things, the Major said. According to the Confederate Code of Military Justice, I don't have to discuss my religion or the reasoning for decisions made for me by my elders that are recognized by Space Force or the Confederate military, Casey said as Buxton sat down, sighing with the taking of the weight of his sore knee. This is a slightly different, Sergeant, the Major said. All of the generals and their staffers just stared silently. She looked at Buxton. Your people, the Tarkin. Need a representative, and you're the highest-ranking target in service. Yes, ma'am, Buxton said. And it is estimated that your decisions carry more weight than anyone else might amongst your people, the Major said. More than likely, ma'am, Buxton said. He looked around and saw every Terran there. Their eyes were amber, with the exception of Casey. So we decided to include you in this discussion, as it has importance to you and your people, Major said. General Krodaka gave a whistling sound of the Trianidad chuckle. What the Major is skirting around, son, is that us high-ranking brass wanted you to be present so that you can see the decisions being made. The Major's eyes flicked red for a moment, something that Buxton filed away as she didn't like being interrupted, before she sighed and looked at Staff Sergeant Casey. The Terran just stared back calmly. For those of us unfamiliar with your religion... Are you permitted cybernetic implants, clone tissue, or suds? The Major asked. Casey sighed, the kind of sigh Vuxton had heard before. Hell, that he'd made before. The sigh of someone who has repeated something so often that it had gone beyond tired and into resignation. I'm allowed a cybernetic implant if it's a part of my work, or needed to save my life. Clone tissue is only part of the issue but it is allowed in the case of major organs to preserve life functions. 
I am also not allowed a genetic modification or prosthesis outside of extremely rigid confines, he said in the tones of a man who'd rehearsed the speech many, many times before. Suds is absolutely forbidden. Why? Aragelian asked. Buxton's implant ID'd her as General Nuncrog. Casey sighed. God gave us one life. That's it. We're allowed to extend it through scientific means, but we only get one. When I die, if you restore me from a Suds backup, is it even me or is my soul lost? That's just one part. People with Suds don't value their lives as highly as someone who only gets one chance. That's been statistically proven. The Suds system just recalls neural templates. There's no mechanism for actually handing the soul itself. And once that is gone, we are just a homunculi without God's grace. He put his hands on the table. Look, this has been even argued in the court and is something I have to put up with all the time. Is there a reason for this? Curiosity, right now, Staff Sergeant General Kordaka said. Because everyone's suds are switched off and now you're wondering how I can do that every day, Casey asked. He reached up and adjusted his eye patch. What happened to your eye? Another general asked. Casey looked around. The only general not here is Truckham and the Lanclan, he said quietly. You could have asked me at any time about this. Maybe even looked up my religion. But instead you pulled me off duty to explain to you that my man is meant to have one life. That death is a part of a natural state of the universe. From stars to black holes to people. We can do without the sermon, Sergeant. General Vandu snapped. Casey turned and looked at her, snarling. Buxton noted that the human's eyes were still glowing. Then we're freaking done here, he said, standing up. File charges and be damned with a lot of you. Apologize to Staff Sergeant General Vandu or leave this meeting, General Krutaka said. He lit a cigarette and exhaled smoke out of his legs. General Vandu growled, her eyes red, but managed to choke out an apology. General Krodaka looked at the gathered officers. We have one and a half million troops on this planet under 7th Army, which we have exactly one fifth reformationist in our ranks, the Trianidad said. He looked around again. And before any of you bring Star Sergeant Casey's valor or bravery into question, you would do well to remember he was nearly a thousand years of service. That got mutters. Buxton brought up Casey's record when the general handed it off and nodded appreciatively. He lost his eye due to an accident in a garrison and refused to get a cybernetic implant. He had an impressive record. Buxton looked at Casey's picture in this pile and then at Casey himself. The picture looked identical, despite the fact that the Terran was 300 years old. You're 983 years old? General Vandu asked. Buxton noticed that for some reason, something about Casey made her angry. I'm allowed anti-aging therapies while in service, Casey said. Shrugging, when I leave the military and go home, the anti-aging therapy stop, and I'll age normally. Buxton frowned. He had heard over and over that humans only live for around 500 years. You fought in the Margite War, Bandu asked. Casey looked at her. Yes. And the Ring Wars before that, she asked. Buxton wondered what her problem was. Yes. And you were part of the House Mouse War. Yes. You've never been afraid of dying the whole time, she asked. Buxton frowned at why such a simple question made Casey's eyes start to glow amber. If you can't help but try and infer that Staff Sergeant Casey is a coward, General, you may leave, General Crowducker said. 
He sighed, puffing smoke out. Sergeant, the decision to enter service without a SUDS network connector is a strange one. We're trying to understand why you would choose to do so. Because everyone else has been forced to know that the network is down, Casey said. He rubbed his face with both hands before looking up. Buxton noted that the amber was gone from his eyes. Human fought on terror for the entire existence before SUDS. They rushed into natural disasters to save one another. They went to extreme lengths to protect each other. They fought wars for what they thought was right, Casey said. I believe, and so do others, that humans lost a part of themselves, something special, when suds made death out to be no more than an inconvenience, lost a bit of grace imbued in us by our creator. Why not replace the eye? Buxton asked. He held up one hand placatingly. No offense, men, Sergeant. I'm just curious. He tapped his own cyber eye. Because I lost it, and an eye is not necessary for life, Casey answered. If it had been, like, both kidneys, not one, but both, I could have been put on life support till the new one was cloned. It says here that you have a cybernetic heart, Vladu snapped, her voice slightly triumphant. Doesn't that go against your religion? Except in the case of organs vital to the continuation of life, Casey said. He sighed. Why not cloned tissue? Another general asked. Buxton almost sighed in frustration. It's listed as cybernetic implant, but it's a hybrid. Cloned tissue with the cybernetic parts, Casey said. Look, are you going to ask me anything or just harp on at me about the fact that I've taken some damage over the last 900 and some odd years? I wanted to see if you had any insight that might help us deal with the ongoing SUDS issue, General Krodaka said. Staff Sergeant Casey sighed. Give everyone a choice to move to non-combatant if they so choose. Not reclassify MOSs, but to put on temporary disability retirement listing. That way it doesn't affect their time in grade, time in service, or seniority standings. Cainsey pointed at Fuxton. See, his people get it. Something that our Trianidad, Manton, and Rigelian allies get. Some things are worth defending, even at the cost of your own life, Casey said. He stood up. If you're that worried about having to face the same difficulties as every one of our allies... If you're that afraid of death, he looked at Vandu, and Vuxton could feel that the human was trying to goad the Terran female. Then maybe the military isn't for you, he finished. Vandu jumped to her feet. What did you just say, you son of a bitch? Sparks sprang from under her hand, the fizzing sound lost in the loud crack her hand made against the table. Maybe it's time to see who has still got the balls to stay in the military, now that there's an actual penalty for failure, Casey said still not turning around. Buxton saw that he had clenched his left fist, and there was electrical arts playing across his knuckles. Now that you might actually die in service, like every single one of our allies, you found out that war isn't some fun game. That it's a terrible thing with a horrible cost, Casey said. It seems to bother some of you. Sucks, don't it? Casey asked, walking towards the door. Don't you turn your back on me, soldier, Vandu snapped. General, sit down and compose yourself. General Krodaka snapped. Stop, Sergeant, you're excused. The Trianidad General got out right before Casey opened the door. When the door shut, he turned and looked at everyone. The Staff Sergeant's idea is a good one. Any soldier whose sides is out, who no longer wants to continue in service, will be allowed to exit service, the General said. 
You can't force someone whose suds is no longer functioning into combat, nor can you punish them for their suds malfunctioning, General Vandu said. She tapped her fingernails on the table, forcing them out of the military is against CCMJ. If they refuse to fight, refuse to do their jobs, you can punish them. My God, that's the backbone of any military, another general said. You cannot order a soldier with a damaged suds into combat, Vandu countered. Buxton sighed. This was going to be a long day. Buxton was sitting on a stack of tracks for Terran heavy tanks when Staff Sergeant Casey came up to him, the loading frame hissing and clicking. There was thunder in the sky and rain was light. They decide anything, the Terran asked. Buxton shook his head. I went out for a bathroom break and never came back. You know, Vandu has managed to avoid every combat theater, Casey said. General Tic Tac has managed to avoid combat. Buxton countered. General Tic Tac has managed to avoid combat in combat zones by ensuring that combat arms guys can defeat the enemy. Vandu has avoided every combat theater. Oh, Buxton said. I just checked, Casey said, starting to turn away. What? Her position in v Casey said. He paused. Do you know what it is? No, Buxton admitted. She's in command of the power armor troops. Including you, Talcon. Buxton watched the Terran stalk away, yelling at his men to get their shit together. The thunder crackled as he said one word, nice and soft. Shit. End of chapter. Chapter 313. The War. Planet Slatmert, Neo-Sapient, Near-Sapient Space Border. Fourteen days after Case Omaha. Day 3 of Red Dot. Three months after initial Red Dot's and Hestler system. A armorer felt a vibration of the engine's die as the tank made a whining noise that slowed down to a stop. He stood up from the command seat, the back swiveling out of the way, the rear of the seat sliding down under the forward part, the armrests lowering. Once it had shifted largely out of the way, he carefully turned around and trotted out the back ramp. The air was smoky, full of carbonized metal, prop-charged vapors, and smoke from the burning city that lay ahead. Trucker had already climbed out of the tank, shifting his body armor to get a bit more comfortable. Aomaru could see that the female Terran waiting for both Trucker and Aomaru, standing in ankle-deep mud and staring at the city. A short set of power armor, designed for someone smaller than a Terran with a muzzled helmet, was standing next to her with a larger suit of a skull-faced power armor next to the shorter one. A armorer reached her at the same time as Trunker. Colonel Maxine Suck, the female Terran said, 19th Air Cavalry Regiment. Most High Armorer, 326th Armored Great Herd, a armorer said. Trunker, third armor, the big birdie Terran said, packing his lip with cud. The skull-like faceplate opened to reveal a Terran female with dark hair, dark eyes, freckles, who was sweating. Colonel Paola Momali, First Talker Marines, this is First Lieutenant Buxton. Same, the woman said. The short power armor troop nodded. Another human rushed up, one with a big black Terran cyborg, swearing additional armor and carrying one of the Terran magnetic accelerated rifles. The cyborg stopped. Colonel Wolfram Murajama, 3rd Assault Infantry Regiment, 14th Infantry Division, the cyborg said once the introductions were completed. 
Chaka turned and looked at the burning city. Urban combat, not the best foot for a armoru, and my boys. No, sir, Colonel O'Malley said, chewing on something. A armoru wondered what it was. This promises to be ugly. One shot from one of Chaka's big boys will blow a hole fifty feet wide in one of those sky rakers. Moana Juma mused, staring at the city. It'll be light weapons only, which means we've got our hands tied with the clankers, don't. If I reduce my weapons to basic strength, I can operate in the city, Ayamaru said. My weapons are designed to not be dangerous in urban areas. The fact all of the predatory primates turned their burning gazes on him made Ayamaru uncomfortable, but he continued on. All unified council weapons are designed to do minimum damage to structures, Ayamaru said. It's one of the reasons we've stayed with plasma weapons and lasers. My boys brushed the corner of one of those buildings and it's coming down, Truck said, spitting into the brown grass. What's the plan? Amani said. Break into small elements. Three tanks, two from three ID, one from Great Herd, per platoon of infantry, two squads of your warborgs, and nineteen tanks back, according to General Krodaka. Moana Juma said. First Talcon provides tank cover, and 38th Infantry Division will man 19th Strikers for rapid deployment. Trucker nodded. I'd rather be slam-banging out in the graveyard, but, uh... He shrugged and spit. Recon, confirm it. Colonel Sock nodded. Flyby, drones, and recon from orbit shows the clankers are keeping about a quarter million of the locals alive. Melint thinks it's a trap to lure us in. Oh, something worse, Buxton said. With the precursors, it's always worse. You can hear the screaming from here, Abani said. Soon as I opened my faceplate, I could hear it. Being hearing it the last thirty miles, Trucker said, spitting into the grass. I ordered my men to button up. Should we dress the elephant in the room? Sok asked. Ayamaru's implant tossed him up an image of a large four-legged creature in the middle of a room with everyone trying to talk around it. He had limited access to the terror network. A few of his men had tried fully linking into it and had been almost lost in the deluge of information, so a Amaru kept the recommended filters engaged. Is this about your rebirthing system? a Amaru asked. All the Terrans made motions of assent. General Krodaka said to do it with a voluntary leave or stay, Obadi said. Trucker shrugged. Didn't have a single one of my boys or girls dismount the tank. Yeah. But you're the third freaking armor, old metal, Sok laughed. I do not understand, Ayamaru said, frowning. Sok turned to Ayamaru. Just to be in the third armor, you have to have at least 50 years and 10 combat drops in the tank. If you get killed, even if you're brought back, you leave third armor and are listed as one of third armor's dead. Once you're in third armor, you stay until you die or you retire. Ayamaru considered it for a moment while the others waited. Finally, he nodded. It's a prestige assignment sought out by those who are more martial in your culture. Amali nodded. Same with the 11th Cav. I'm hoping after this deployment I can transfer over there to whatever slot is open, even if I have to take a reduction in rank. As it is, I'm just glad I made 7th Army. Anyone have anyone who dropped? Moana Juma asked. One, Abadi said. She shrugged. His wife gave birth to triplets the week before he left. He's been having serious mortality thoughts ever since. Says he saw a black dog lurking around the firebase. Trucker made a sound like someone had struck him in the stomach. 
Man deploys with a new wife and new babies. He's dead. Law of the universe. Right up there with the gravity and hatred. Hey, Amaru was surprised that everyone nodded sagely. He had expected a martial Lemus to scoff at the other Terran's weakness. Time for the elephant's second foot, Drucker said. Anyone notice anything odd? Hey, Amaru noticed that the Terrans looked uncomfortable. Buxton raised one armored hand. When everyone turned and looked at him, he tapped the heavy autocannon on the smart harness. I've seen some of the Terran troops with electrical arcs on their weaponry. It seems to be tied into how sick into battle they are. O'Malley nodded. I've seen that too. Moana Juma shrugged. Not so much. Tempers are up. Combat chemicals are kicking in easier. Tempers are definitely up, Sock said. There's been some fights. Trucker spit again. Have your officers and senior NCOs keep an eye out for anything odd. Like what? A armoru asked. Any apparent psychic activity, Sock said. Trucker nodded, his expression grave. I've overheard some of the intel boys talking. They think a psychic attack on the sufficient large enough Terran population might have caused the sun's disruption, which means we might react to it even though we aren't being attacked, he said. He stared at the city. We're going in against Type 3s with heavy Type 1s and 2 backups, as well as some hybrids. I can't believe we gave them almost an entire year to refit, Sock said. She sighed. I get it. We couldn't find any other bases in the long dock, and it's a big place. But we should still be looking. Woulda, shoulda, coulda, didn't, Buxton shrugged. All right, let's get the orders. Let the shake-up and get to the deployment point, O'Malley said. Her faceplate snapped closed, and it was obvious to Aamaru that her power armor went live. She nodded and walked away, Lieutenant Fuxton following. See you on the other side, Trucker said, turning away. He stopped, staring at the city. They know we're here. No, we're coming. Moana Juma shrugged. Not like we've kept it a secret. Moving this much men and metal is kind of obvious. Trucker nodded. Get your drones up. They think they've got something nasty up their sleeves. Mawa Juma nodded in return. 10-4, General. Trucker turned to Aamaru. Our orders are to do as little damage to the city as possible. You're a tanker. You know the chances of that. The same chances as a Normadian shellback lizard has when it's sucked into a halberd fan. Aamaru snorted. Ready much? I'll see you on the other side, Trucker said. He turned and headed for his tank. A armor stood out in the drizzling rain for a long moment before he turned and headed for his tank. The whole meeting felt weird to him. No holograms, no discussion panels, no tons of staff all putting in their opinions. Just a half dozen beings meeting in a field. He glanced aboard his tank, straddling the bench seat. It extended and he settled down on it, the back swinging into place to lean against, the armrests coming up. He belted himself in and looked at his crew. We'll be fighting in the city, Aamaru said. His crew all looked at him. Set the weapons and battle screens for urban combat. Make sure the Terran modifications do not put the weapons outside of urban warfare parameters. His crew nodded and set to work on the various systems. I have a lot of data on urban warfare and armored perspective, Takor said. I can assist you, Togarth said through the data link his icon blinking on one of Aamaru's command displays. I have extensive experience in urban combat. Excellent. I'll take all the advice you can give, Aamaru stated.
Buxton had to admit, he felt totally exposed in a very weird way. During first and second target, he had spent plenty of time out in the open, at least until the jungle had overgrown everything. During first target, he had spent almost the entire time in the city. This felt different. The city ahead of him seemed abandoned. On the other hand, it was as if it was holding its breath, almost as if there was a ton of enemies just out of sight, watching his every move. Hate city fighting, Ball 71 said from inside his armored housing. I spent most of the first war in a city, Buxton said, looking around him. The suburb was largely lanik with sloping lawns, two- and three-story domiciles, all with rounded corners of lanik architecture. A lot of houses had broken windows, broken doors, holes in the walls, all of which was silent evidence of the precursor autonomous war machines had been through the suburb. He was one of six Talcon troops, six human troops, two of Trucker's big tanks, and a Lanark land tank. He was used to riding on the back deck so that the tank's speed and maneuverability could be used. But now he was walking about 15 feet away. Keep your intervals five meters, Sergeant Nazari said, her voice tight. Let's not have half of us taken out by a mine or a grenade. Icons blinked in assent. Element, halt, the tank commander suddenly said, holding up his hand in a closed fist. Buxton braced himself, putting pressure on the firing grip and bringing around the heavy cannon to point at the houses. The rest of the Talcon and the humans went down on one knee, holding their weapons ready and scanning the assigned zones. Anyone else hear screaming coming from that house? He asked, highlighting the house on everyone's retinal links. I do, the other tank commander said, raking back the charging handle on the quad-barrel gun and avoiding looking at the house. Everyone else flashed negative. Sergeant Azari, can you hear it? Buxton asked, bringing the house into focus and magnifying it. Negative, sir, the human NCO said. Open your face shield, Buxton ordered. Yes, sir. The human skull-like faceplate split down the middle and opened. By the digital omnibus-sized glittering ball sack, she said softly. It sounds like the wailing of the damned from the city. The house, Sergeant, Buxton said. Yes, sir, she said. I can hear it now. There has to be a dozen people screaming at the top of their lungs in there. Seal back up, Buxton said. He turned and looked. All of the Terrans were in full power armor. The war books were, well, war books. The only Terrans outside of armor were the two tank commanders, who were outside the hatch from the mid-chest up. Tankers, seal up. Tell me if you can hear the screaming, Buxton said. Something was nagging at him. The two tankers didn't argue, just dropped inside and closed the hatches. Do you still hear it? Buxton asked. Negative, sir, Captain Gearson said, her voice sounding annoyed. No, sir, Captain Ulamama said. But I've got almost a thousand tons of armor between me and the screams now. Buxton opened his faceplate and listened. Some explosions in the distance. The wind moaning, rain pattering. He couldn't hear any screaming. Psychic shields now, Buxton snapped. Cover your teeth in glitter. Don't see Psy attack, Paul 71 said. Trust me, there is something going on, Buxton replied. Ride or die, Paul 71 answered letting Buxton know that the little green mantid had his back. More Borg Sanchez, pop the stealth drone, slave the feed to the heavies on me, Buxton said. Roger, sir. The heavy assault cyborg's voice was electronic, 
giving no hint as to the brain's sex. A panel opened on the big cyborg's leg and a drone popped out, rolled in midair to deploy the thin membrane-like wings. It oriented and began floating to the house. Buxton watched in the window of his visor, tabbing up a piece of gum to chew as the little drone hovered around the house, then went through the broken window. The house was a shell. Inside was a massive precursor vessel surrounded by a horde of smaller ones. Clankers the size of Vuxton were hanging on the bigger one. Ones the size of ground cars were clustered around the heavy treads of the biggest one, which was the size of a 16 freight train car stacked too high, too wide, and four long. It's an ambush, Vuxton said. Pop drones, check the houses. Where's the screaming coming from? Gearson asked. The clanker, Vuxton said softly, as if he could hear them. Somehow, it's coming from the clanker. Prisoners, Sergeant Nazari suggested. If there is, they're inside. We can't help them if that's the case, Captain Nulamama said. The front of the house exploded as the precursor AWMs roared out towards Buxton and the others, their guns already firing. Gearson's tank fired its main gun, the size of a big clanker authorizing weapons free. The tank, named Shout It All Out, roared rocking back on its treads as the massive gun fired. The smaller Lanark land tank opened fire, breaking the smaller ones. Ulamamana's tank, last word, opened up on the big one. Buxton, the cyborgs, and the other armored infantry opened up with their weapons. The four warboys had already deployed their heavy 20mm chain guns and opened up the rapid fire. The AWMs had intended on ambushing Buxton and the others, but the ambush relied on split-second hesitation from ambushes. Shouted all out, fired again, and the bigger one's battle screen went down in a shower of sparks. Last word fired, and the entire side of the brink clanker caved in, fire gouting out. Two rockets sped through the shattered armor and gutted the heavy AWM. Buxton had glanced up at Gearson in time to see it. The Terran female tanker was firing her quad barrel, Thumbs on the triggers where the rotating barrels suddenly were wreathed in a blue and white crackling electricity. The heavy APDS round slamming into smaller clankers, and Vuxton could see the eye-watering flash where the rounds connected. It was over in less than ten seconds. Drones out! Keep moving! Captain Gearson ordered. Vuxton waved the barrel of the autocannon back and forth to cool it, as he had his armor record what he had seen and squirted to Mullint. You see that too? 471 asked. Yeah, Buxton said. Ungood. Yeah. Talcon Forge Worlds. I'm getting reports of Terran shooting lightning from their hands. Nothing follows. Hackletack Free Flight. Since when did Terran shoot lightnings? Nothing follows. Tinvuru Grouping Hands. From what I've seen on of historical documentaries, not since the end of the Dark Crusade of Burning Light. Apparently, there are no more Terran Psychers. Nothing follows. Talcon Fortschultz, yeah? Well, looks like there are. I'm getting some weird twinges out of Hessler, and I've had to isolate the 2nd Talcon Marine Division speed. Nothing follows. Ackletack, free flight. Define weird. Nothing follows. Talcon Fortschultz, repeating time date stamps with wildly different data. Nothing follows. Ackletack free flight. I've got a few of my people in there with the naval forces. I'm getting the same thing. Nothing follows. Tinvuru gripping hands. Anything I can help with? Nothing follows. 
Dalgan Forgeworlds. Not unless you can figure out what's going on with the time date stamps. What's even weirder is I've gotten three times the data from those people who are with the second Talgan Marines than anyone else. It's like they're resending three days worth of data in a single day. I started to get a headache and had to put them on their own channel. Nothing follows. Tinver gripping hands. That's weird. Let us know what else happens. Nothing follows. End of chapter. Chapter 314. Talcon. One week after Case Omaha. The day was a slow day. The sky was overcast. The threat of rain in the air, but the clouds never letting loose with the promise. The sun hidden with the heavy grey clouds. The day was chilly. Not enough to warrant a jacket, but too cold for a light shirt. The wind was right at the point where it sipped away at the body heat, but went largely unnoticed. The spaceport was largely quiet, only a few ships landing each hour. The majority of them were cargo transports. One landing, dropping off a single passenger, then lifting off once she was off the ship. Chuxel looked up as the Terran female walked down the boarding tube and into the concourse. He checked his computer display to make sure that everything was booted up, then made sure that the screens that she would walk between were turned on. It had been about a week since the last passenger. Not a military transport, but a civilian transport had landed and he hadn't been unshipped when it had happened. The woman went slow between the plates, raising up her arms when she did so. Truxel stared at the display that was tilted so only he could see it. Massive cybernetics. From neural cyberware down to her spine, down her limbs, machinery embedded in her torso, two induction pads, one on each palm, and much more. A lot of them flashed as mill-spec grade, and his system didn't throw out any specifications or purpose of the implants. The board suddenly fuzzed and read security lockout of the data. When she stepped out and he frowned slightly. She was tall, slender, had dark onyx skin, dark eyes with purple eyeshadow, severe features even for a Terran, tightly curled black hair and a flat top that she was pretty sure could be measured with a laser and dressed in a black suit that looked, well, masculine to Truxel's eyes. Identification, Truxel said. He thought it was weird that his equipment would identify the person when they walked down the boarding tube, but he was still required to ask all Terrans for their identification. The woman held up her hand, two fingers and thumb straight out, and then slowly reached into her suit. She removed her flat, thin leather wallet, dyed black and set it slowly on the counter. She used one fingernail to flip it open. Terran Confederacy of Aligned Systems Identification, Miss Smith, Joanna. The female's biometrics were below, as well as a 2.5D picture of her. She reached out with her forefinger and touched the square beside her picture. The ID's edge flashed green, and the barcode appeared. Truxel scanned it and had verified that the Terran female in front of him matched the ID. Reason for visit, Truxel asked, hitting the record stud. Business, the Terran female answered. Length of stay. Intermediate, she said. Approved, flashed up. Anything to declare, Truxel said. No, she said. Thank you, 
If you have any questions, your data link can provide any information you need on channel 112.2, Truxel said. Have a good day, the woman smiled, showing a startling amount of teeth behind her purple lipstick. You too, Truxel said. He watched the Terran female leave and frowned slightly. He'd never seen a Terran who wasn't a soldier of some type, and he wondered what exactly she was here for. After a moment, he shrugged and went back to watching the movie that he'd gotten interested in before the ship landed. Outside, the Terran woman paused, looking up at the sky. She shook her head, smiling that bright, toothy smile, and then looked around for a rental service. Spotting a taxi, she moved over to it, stopping and tapping on the window with one long finger. Belvax looked up from the data state that he was reading and jumped slightly. He'd seen Terrans, mostly when he had been in the refugee camps and in the shelters during the war, but he had never seen a Terran with skin that dark. She smiled and he avoided flinching, startled at how the smile was predatory, but at the same time seemed to make her more visually appealing. Blinking, he rolled down the window. Are you available? The Terran asked. Um, yes, Palbeck said and unlocked the back door. Do you have luggage? The Terran shook her head. No. She got in and closed the door, still smiling. Palbeck realized it was supposed to be comforting and friendly. Can you take me to some place that provides air transportation? Civilian flights, please, she said. Her voice was pleasant and Palvix nodded. He tapped the GPS for a minute and got the flight company. He put the car into gear and slowly pulled into traffic, heading towards the lifter field. His passenger just smiled, looking around her at the city. He expected comments on how well the city had been rebuilt after the war, especially seeing that the precursors had used heavy atomic weaponry on the city. Instead, she just sat in the back seat, looking around her, her hands on her knees, her back straight. At the lifter field, she paid Palvex and got out. Palvex shook his head, noticing she tipped him well, and drove off. The Terran female looked around, taking in the field, looking at the various lifters. All of them used anti-grav systems or graviton systems for VTOL effect. All of them were painted in bright, eye-catching colors. After a moment, she headed into the office, stopping at the front counter. Senmat stared at the human. She, he was pretty sure it was a she, despite the masculine dress that reminded him of a uniform more than anything else, smiled at him, showing a lot of bright white teeth. May I help you? Senmat asked. I need to hire a grav lifter and a pilot, with room for multiple passengers, and uh, maybe cargo, the female Terence said. Senmat noticed her voice was gentle and melodious. When? Senmat asked. As soon as possible, the female Terran said. Senmat checked the computer. There were four pilots available. One had an annotation that she would pilot for human groups, especially tourist groups. She was available, so he pinged her. I have an opening right now, Senmat said. Excellent, the female Terran said. She set down a small rectangular plus card. Charge the expenses to this, please. She held up one finger and deliberately made a show of pressing her finger on the corner of the card. A 2.5D picture of her showed up on the card, which simply read Confederate Bank on it and the string of numbers. 
Zenmat looked at the card, then tapped the embedded Molik Cirque against the payment reader. It cleared immediately. Halna Atuk came in, wiping her hands from where she'd just finished inspecting the port graviton engine on a lifter. What do you want, Zenmat? she asked. Got a customer for you, Zenmat told her. Halna Atuk looked at the Terran, twitching her whiskers. She'd ferried around Terrans who wanted to see the sights since a lot of Terran families had joined their military family members on Tarkin since the wars. Something just seemed strange. Can you take me to these coordinates? The Terran asked, holding up her left hand, palm up, and letting a set of GPS coordinates appear in midair. Halna Atek looked at the coordinates, pulling out her datapad. She punched them in and watched the datapad focused on the area. The Alvin Queens had already cleared that area as a safe zone three months ago, then immediately changed to Amber for authorized people only, within minutes. I'm sorry, um... Helna Atek paused. Miss Smith, the Terran said. She reached out and tapped the pad. Updating, appeared and flashed several times. Authorized, then appeared. Uh, sure, Helna Atek said. It's dangerous, so I'll be charging you my risk rates. Your terms are acceptable, the Terran woman said. Halna Atek thought of the bright purple lipstick and eyeshadow looked weird with such black skin and white teeth. But she twitched her whiskers at acceptance. If the Terran was willing to pay the fee, then she'd take her out there. The flight will take at least three hours out there, Halna Atek warned. I am prepared, the Terran woman said. Then uh, follow me, Halna Atek said. She waved at the Terran to follow her leading her out to where the whiny baby was sitting. She noticed that the human was very precise in her movements. It nagged at her. She'd seen people move like that before, seen Terrans move like that before, but couldn't place it. She opened the passenger door, handed the Terran a padded set of headphones, and then shut the door before walking around and climbing in. The grab lifter powered up and the graviton engine started whining. They salvaged from Lanaclan hover trucks and a crashed Terran combat striker. The woman gave a chuckle. I understand the name, she said, her voice soft and picked up perfectly by the headset. Running slightly out of spec for a smoother ride. Clever. Thank you, Halna Atek said. I learned how to work on graviton engines during the walls. Hmm, the Terran said, nodding. The whole ride, Halna Etek kept an eye on the weather outside the gradlifter, as well as the weather warning LED strip. It didn't rain, just sat on the edge. Sit down on the edge of the amber area, the Terran said as Halna Etek slowed down. I'll walk inside. I would prefer you remain waiting. For how long? Halna Etek asked. If I'm not back by nightfall, I will not return. You may leave and report me as overdue the Terran woman said as the grav lifter sat down. She opened the door and got out and then took the time to tug her cuffs. Stay within your own vehicle for your own safety. Halnertuk swallowed and nodded. She shut down the lifter, not wanting to put more hours on the parts. She looked out at the forest outside and nodded again. It was dark, shadowed, and seemed almost angry. She watched the Terran female walk into the forest, Again, her movement seemed to be careful and deliberate. She leaned back and pulled her data state out of her pocket, extending it out to the side and up and down, then bringing up her favorite match game while keeping her vehicle's vitals in the upper right. 
she made sure to bring up her external microphone so that she could listen to around the lifter. The forest was close, heavily overgrown, and felt like it was centuries old. While it wasn't raining, water dripping. Halnertuk could hear animals moving around, rustling at the undergrowth, jumping from branch to branch. It was nearly two hours later when the Terran female stepped out of the forest, walking slowly up to the gravelifter. She opened the side, brushed off her forearms as if they had a lint or dirt on the black cloth of the masculine-appearing suit, and then climbed in. I'll need to return here tomorrow, the Terran female said. I would prefer that you bring me. Taking a different lifter and lifter pilot out here may disturb what I am attempting to do. Alner took frowned. What are you doing, if I may ask? You may not, the Terran female said, her voice suddenly heavy with authority. Oh. Halnertuk felt a cold chill go down her spine and curled her short tail protectively. The ride back was silent. The Terran female hired a driver to take her to a hotel, where she paid with an unmarked card, went to her room, and did not exit until just before dawn. Four more times the Terran female, looking as perfect and unruffled as ever each time, hired Halnertuk to take her out of the same spot each time. Each time, she was gone for several hours and returned just before sunset. By the fifth time, Halna Attack was waiting in a grab lifter. Each time was the same. Arrive, wait, return. Out of curiosity, Halna Attack looked up the region. Some of the fiercest fighting on both first and second Talkan had happened out there. Most of it was behind Talkan governmental security locks. It was one of the first places on the continent that the Elven Queens had started to work on. On the fifteenth day, Alnertek was shocked when there was a tapping on a side window. She whipped her head around from the datapad to the window. The Terran woman, the smith, stood there, her face serious. Alnertek slid the window to the side. Are you armed? Miss Smith asked. No. Why? Alnertek replied. I must ask again, pilot, are you armed? The Terran female asked. No. What's going on? Halnertuk asked. I must ask a third time, so that my duty is done. Are you armed? The Terran asked. No, Halnertuk said. She stopped herself from yelling. Should I be? No. I need you to gather about you and your professionalism and attachment. You will be flying a passenger and myself to Fort Menbax. The Terran said. Passenger? Halnertuk asked. Yes, I found him and convinced him to come with me. Please do not speak to him unless he speaks to you. Keep your voice calm. He's very easily startled, the Terran female said. All right, I'll unlock the side door for the passenger compartment, Halnertuk said. Very good. I thank you, the Terran said. Please get ready for flight. Starting up the gravelifter, Halnertuk watched as the Terran female went back into the forest, standing in front of some bush and ferns. To Halnertuk, it looked like she was talking to someone further back in the woods. She gasped when the forest suddenly moved and dissolved into a large, heavily muscled Terran in tattered rags. The Terran female reached out and took the figure's hand. Halnertuk realized that a part of the Terran male's face was torn away, revealing a black metal skull. The other hand was exposed cybernetics. The cybernetics in the Tulsa were exposed. The Terran had moss growing here and there on his flesh. 
she could actually see the artificial organs and tubes and cables. The Terran female walked him slowly up to Halnertek's grab lifter. The male flinched away from it, and Halnertek saw an expression on the Terran male's face that she had never seen on a Terran's face before. Fear. The Terran female lifted up and clasped her hands together, talking too soft for Halnertek to hear. After a moment, she helped him up into the passenger compartment. Halnertek noticed that the flesh on the back was completely missing, exposed black metal ribs and pieces of machinery. Halnertek threw them back, heading for the Joint Services military base. There was a clink over her headset. Please request permission to enter airspace and land at the Natilla Ek Military Medical Center, the Terran woman said softly. Your vehicle system identification number is already logged. Yes, ma'am, Halnertek said. It felt like a ma'am moment. Permission was granted as Halnertek brought the gravlifter down on the big helipad. She noted that there was a full medical team standing by. Please stay in the vehicle and await my return, the Terran female said as the gravlifter landed. Yes, ma'am, Halnertek said. Halnertek watched as the male Terran got out, holding tight to the female's hand. He flinched back from the medical team when they began to approach. She held on to his hand, patting him, rubbing the little bit of flesh that remained over his shoulder blades. And Halnertek could tell that she was speaking to him in soothing tones. After a long moment, the male allowed himself to be helped up onto the gurney. The doctors surrounded him, and they whirled him into the hospital. The female Terran stood there for a long moment, then turned back to Haldertek, slowly moving over and getting in. I'd prefer to go back to my lodging, the female Terran said. Haldertek noticed that the crisp, authoritative tone sounded more tired. Yes, ma'am, Haldertek said. The female Terran leaned back and closed her eyes as Haldertek lifted off. Following the air traffic control direction, still she left the airspace of the military base. She looked over as they flew through the darkness and noticed that the eye shadow around the female Terran's eyes glowed softly in the dark. I'll drop you off at the hotel, Haldertek half offered. That would be appreciated, the Terran female said. Are you alright? Haldertek asked carefully. I'm very tired. It's been a stressful two weeks. I was worried at the end. The Terran female said. Worried? Halnertek asked. He looked like he was barely able to move. The Terran woman chuckled. Looks are deceiving. He's in great pain. Oh, Halnertek said. They flew silently for a little while. I'll need to retain your services again, the Terran woman said without opening her eyes. Very well, Halnertek said. For how long? I have sixteen more names on my list. Sixteen places to search. On this part of the continent alone, she said. She sounded exhausted. Are they dangerous? Halnertek asked after a long moment of silence. Yes, to themselves more than anyone else, the Terran female said. They are often confused, always in pain, and many times reliving the same event over and over. Who are they? Halnertek asked. The living dead, the Terran female said. Halnertek's hand bobbled on the stick. It is my duty to buy them, to mark them for recovery if they are asleep, to convince them to come back, to let go of the moment of the deaths if they are awake, 
My father, Karen, sent me to collect them, the Terran female said softly. She turned and looked at Haldertek. We are sisters now, you and I. The Terran closed her eyes and was silent for the rest of the trip. When Halnertuk landed, the Terran female got out, turned to close the door. Ma'am, Halnertuk said. The Terran paused. I'll meet you here an hour before dawn, the Dalkin said. The Terran nodded. Rest well, sister, Halnertuk said softly, seeing if the human's words had really carried the weight that they had. You as well, sister, the Terran said, and closed the door. Sixteen more, Halnertek thought to herself as she lifted off. Sixteen more just in this area. She landed her lifter and got out slowly. She took time to sweep the moss, leaves, fern fronds and the dirt from the passenger compartment of a grab lifter. The morning was dark, clouds heavy in the sky of the pre-dawn darkness, the threat of rain hanging over the world. The gravelifter sat down in the parking lot of the modest hotel only a few miles from an airfield. The female Terran stood, her suit immaculate, her eyeshadow glowing softly in the darkness. Once the gravelifter sat down, she got inside. Good morning, sister, Alnertuk said. To duty, sister, the female Terran said. She touched the data pad. Here is the coordinates. The gravelifter rose into the air and vanished into the darkness. Citizenship is a heavy burden. End of chapter. Chapter 315. One week before Case Omaha. Nebulous team wins landmark case UCN no Osama O. In a surprising turn of events, the Lanikaland-owned registered franchise company, Unified Nebulous Team, Negative Liability Company, registered in the Univile Council space, has won its case against the Executive Council. The company found itself cut off from its parent company, Confederate Nebula Steam Game Provider, LLC, with a disconnection of Gullnet from the Confederate Solnet. The Executive Council moved to forbid Unified Council Space citizens from accessing software that they had purchased previously before the state of war existed between the Council and the Confederacy. Citing interstellar commerce law, Unified Nebula Steam sued the Executive Council for loss of profits, damage to commerce, interference in legal exchange, and breach of contract. The Executive Council had countered with the fact that the Unified Nebula Steam is an authorized franchise of the Terran-owned Confederate Nebula Steam Game Provider, LLC, and thus falls under interstellar warfare clauses. In a surprising 25,874-0 decision, the Unified High Legal Council found the UNS as well as finding the Executive Council after it was found that the Great Grand Most High of the Executive Council had attempted to create his own digital distribution program, hosting pirated Terran entertainment media. Additionally, the Unified High Legal Council determined that each member of the UNS is to be paid nearly 8,000 credits in-store currency to be paid by the Executive Discriminatory Spending Fund for illegal seizure of assets not related to a crime due to the UNS accounts being locked. Unified Nebula Steam has, as of this writing, opened its electronic doors once again, and Terran media, often considered subversive and psychologically dangerous, is available to any Unified Council citizen who opens a free account or currently possesses an account. 
Unified Medical Council has warned that Terran Entertainment Media may cause addiction or psychological stress. Despite this, market analysts estimate that the UNS has, uh, as of this writing, done more than 132 quadrillion credits worth of business. As the Great Most High of Planetary Maintenance, D'Arma-O, knew he should publicly care that half the systems were no longer working right. But to be honest, the only people complaining were those suffering the accidental malfunctions that kept occurring. The people who fixed the systems were happy with D'Arma-O, because he just hit the authorized button on the overtime without any argument. The people who lived in the areas were happy, as many towns and hab blocks were seeing maintenance personnel for the first time in generations. D'Arma-O couldn't believe how easy his job was. All it had taken was boredom after the pink panty fairy and her wibbly and excitingly subversive friends had been locked behind the executive council's stupid rules. He rubbed all four hands together as he looked at the clock. At last, those no-fun killjoys over at the executive council palace had lost their stupid lawsuit and now had to chew on sour cud. He had heard the lamenting over their discriminatory fun being robbed all the way to his office. For his own part, to punish them for being no-fun killjoys, he had made sure that the officers of the high executors and above suffered from environmental system failure and ordered work crews to work in overlapping ships around the clock to fix the problems. He had ordered only the smelliest and lingering of cleaners to be used in their offices and buildings at estates. He had ensured malfunctions had made their personal galloping lawns turn brown and brittle, had made sure that the private kitchens and cut dispensers always broke down. He rubbed his hands together again. It was easy to do. A few weak lessons on computer interface programming and other systems programming, some discreet hiring of some coders through the Mr. Johnson entity on the seedier parts of Garnet, which he loved. And the entire planet was now controlled from his interface, from the smallest valve and tiniest micropump to the largest turbine and reactor. All control from his overlay. It finished booting up and he smiled. The little splash screen and dancing neo-sapiens depicted a big-eyed cartoons all waved wrenches and tools over their heads as they chased a flaming Terran made him smile. He was proud of that screen. It brought him great pleasure to see. It brought about a sensible chuckle, which was the best kind of chuckle. D'Amao examined the mass overlay when it came up. The computer overlay program had generated problems for him to handle as well as identified actual problems. He quickly checked his pool of workers near each location, looked at their skill ratings and talents and class skills, and quickly sent them to each spot. Sure, the game actually shut down valves and caused sewer backups in most high estates, or wiped the memory systems of cut dispensers, or reset the clocks, and made a hologram of a flaming turn walk around asking insane questions, taken from articles about boring conversations that D'Amao had placed on a weighted list. But D'Amao had ensured that the interface generated problems never affected the people who worked and did their jobs. After all, if the hab complex sees prized level 8 pipe maintenance crew with the endurance perk and the hit crew's patience perk, inhabitant suffered maintenance failures, why, they took a hit to their morale and family bonding states that could damage their repair scores, 
which meant the real-world repairs took <gasps> longer and could lead to cascading failures. It had been difficult to codify the real world into variables and mathematics that his overlay graphical user interface could understand. De Amaon had heard rumors that some Neo-Sapiens and Lanaclan maintenance workers had been taken to lighting candles that had his image upon them, as their paychecks had been cashed and the DOS, to use what a wonderful phrase from the favorite subversive game, had flowed into every pocket. He wasn't sure how to add that into his interface and it nagged him. Still, his interface beat the long, grinding decades of long boredom that he'd endured before he'd gotten copies of the wonderful Terran entertainment media. The Pink Panty Fairy and her friends had opened his mind, he had to admit. His interface pinged and he saw an alert pop up. Oh no, a wandering Terran had appeared. Almost trembling with glee, he clicked on the icon and watched it open up. The second great most high of the executor legal officers had his personal bathroom fail. Oh, a rare shiny failure. Plumbing backup, door locked, environmental system malfunctioned, uncomfortable jadiness. Flickering lights, trapped citizen, interactive burning Terran 6 manifestation. The job was worth 12 seconds of leisure time if he got it done quickly and cleanly. Another five seconds if he managed to banish the Terran before it could destroy the cut dispensers. De Amao rubbed his hands together and checked the nearby maintenance teams. He was pleased to see the Pukan exorcism team was well rested, getting a bonus, and had spent family time, another bonus, and were eligible for Terran manifestation hazard pay, more bonus. He quickly tapped icons, dispatching a real-world maintenance team to rescue the second great most high from the bathroom to fix the lock, the plumbing, and the lights, as well as dispatching an exorcism team to banish the terror before he damaged more of the executor legal center. Done. He checked his rewards. Oh, he was permitted one line of cocaine. He activated the limited VR, finding himself in a comfortably furnished room. There were three white lines on a table, and snorted one, feeling the notavirus.exe race through his implant leaving him slightly tingly and euphoric. He backed out of the program and leaned back against the swivel back of his chair. Long months gone was the time he just stared out the window for hours at a time. There was a pinging and he checked his desk's holographic display. What he saw made him gasp. Unified Nebula Steam NLC, a licensed and bonded subsidiary of the Confederate Nebula Steam Game Distribution LLC, was back online. The MRO rubbed his hands together in glee and hit the bouncing, squeaking icon with a thumb. The interface opened and he trembled with glee again. All 32 of his games were updating. He quickly went to his library and prioritized his favorite game, activating the VR overlay of his office. Outworldly, nothing changed. He had spent long days carefully building his office in VR space while he taught himself interactive VR construction. He saw his wallet and began to tremble. Credit icons were seeping out of it, and he was bulging with credits. Eight thousand credits. He quickly went to the store page, and a suited Lanark Land VR construct materialized in his office. Great Most High Damo, what a pleasure to serve you, the VR salesman said. Despite being such a young and primitive species, the formality that Terran built VIs displayed made Amao swoon 
with delight. It's a pleasure to be served, Damo said. Welcome back to your personalized store. It appears you have acquired a personal VR room. Would you like it linked to your account and store page at no extra cost? The sales VI asked. Yes, I would enjoy that. I programmed it myself, Damo O said, feeling something strange when he admitted that. A Terran could have told him that it was pride. One moment, our technicians are error-checking. Would you like to see them virtually rendered? The sales VI asked. Yes, I enjoy seeing subordinates work, Damo said. It was true. He often watched his work crews through sec cams. A few times, beings from the Unified Security Council had attempted to forbid him from using their cameras. But after a few, uh, maintenance problems that they had, the use of the delightful phrase the profanity-spewing red-headed Terran girl had taught him, they had fucked off and let him do his thing. Small robots with big heads made of shining chrome appeared and began checking under the virtual couch cushions, the walls where the paneling hit streams of code. It only took moments before the robot stood behind the VI. This room suffers from zero critical errors, nine major errors, 603 minor errors. Would you like them to be automatically repaired and a detailed list sent to your gull bail? The VI asked. Yes, I would like to watch them work as I shop, Damo said. What was the use in hiring beings to work if you didn't watch them rather than stare off into space? He tapped the floating eye card with what the pink panty fairy had taught him was the brofist and watched as only 50 credits dropped from his account. It appears that there is now a Galnet-compatible personnel VR overlay of your favorite game, offering an additional 16 outfits per group, as well as 6 hairstyles, 10 pairs of shoes, and over 200 gifts of interactive decorations and entertainment, the VI said. Damo's eyes opened wide, all six of them. He held out a lot of cash in the VR, and shouted, Take my money! Excellent choice, Great Most High, the VI said. The money vanished. Hey, Damo! Looking snazzy, baby, he heard from behind him. His hooves clattered as he turned around and saw the pink panty fairy sitting on his windowsill. A long time no see, she smiled. Damo smiled back. He had made the executive council rue the day. Rue it! And now it had all paid off. So show me this game you made out of your work, the pink panty fairy said, sliding off the windowsill and sashing over to him. The world was right again. End of chapter. Chapter 316. POW Camp Blue Lagoon, two months prior to Case Omaha. Dalvar heard his implant ping as he carefully ran the router around the edge of the long wooden ball that he was working on. He was running a gently curved bevel for one of the railings of the dock, planning on replacing the ant-built material with honest wood from the trees on the island. One piece of physical mail, one email, appeared in his vision. He finished working and then carefully put his tools away. His workshop had more tools than he had been able to afford before he was captured by the overseers to fight against the Terrans, and he was able to work with real wood, something that he would have never been able to afford prior to his conscription. 
It is the laughter of a malevolent universe that I am freer and more wealthy as a prisoner of war in the custody of Terrence than I ever was in the supposedly free and living on my home world, he thought to himself. Dalvar wiped off his hands and went into the main relaxation room of his cottage, sitting down in a woven chair and relaxing. He tapped his implant and was startled to see that it was a combination of video and text. All the way from terror. It had a listing of Terran Prisoner of War Relief Society on the header. Dalvar knew that the TPWRS were the ones who sent packages with treats, sent movies, sent little things that made life a tiny bit easier and a lot more bearable. Prisoner Pen Pal Services was also on the message. Curious, he opened the mail. The pictures were of a small Terran child, probably two-thirds of Dalvar's five-foot-six height. She had black hair woven in tight rows across her skull and braids hanging from her back. She had brown skin, brown eyes, a data link on her right temple, and was wearing a highly colored clothing. The first picture that she was waving, smiling and obviously happy. The legend said, Hello, Inkaru person. The next picture, the same girl, dressed in a different clothing, was in front of a plane of shining glass. She held a sign that said, Hello from the shores of the Great Glass Sea. The next one had the girl sitting on the deck of a small sailing ship with a reflective glass all around her. She wore protective goggles and it was obviously extremely bright. The legend said, I like to sail on the glass sea with my father. For some reason, the pictures made Dalvar smile. He had looked up the Great Glass Sea and was startled to find out that was where the mantid had glassed a huge section of one of the continents of terror, a place called Botswana. Curious, he opened the video. The young girl sat at a desk, a computer next to her, smiling. She waved at the camera. Hi, I'm the Lady Fairy, the Terran girl said. She waved at the camera again. I'm ten years old and in school. I live at the edge of the great glass sea in Botswana, on terror itself. She smiled, and Dalva found himself smiling back as the girl told him all about herself. How she was in school, how the teacher had said that Dalva and his people had been captured and couldn't go home and were lonely. She asked him questions, like what his favorite color was. Hers was yellow. What his favorite food was. Did he have any pets? And more. She was obviously happy to be making the video mail and seemed eager to get to know Dalva. She closed it off with the hope that he would write to her soon. The text was mostly typed letter telling him just little details about how she liked sailing on the glass sea, how much she liked school, and how she had sent him a present. Curious, he opened the small package that had stamp on it that had been inspected by the POW camp services. Inside was a small broken piece of glass. One side highly reflective, the other facets of a broken chunk were dark purplish green. There was a little note with carefully written unified standard language. I found this at the edge of the sea, it read. I thought you might like it. Dalvar stared at the piece of glass, reaching out and touching it. It was a little thing, small, just a chunk of plasma cross. But it meant something to him that she had shared a small part of her world with him. Dear Alan Barr, revered mother, things are going well here. 
A lot of the humans left, with the Trianodan, Mantid, and Rygidians taking over. Something about how the Terrans are needed for a war effort, but it seems a little strange that even my doctor would have left. I am writing to a Terran female child. She likes to exchange videos and texts with me. It is strange how full of life and joy she is, even though her people are at war and two of her family members are with the Terran military. Things have settled down. There's only been a few prisoners, although a month ago another group of females who had all been taken as menial labor on the overseer's estates arrived. I hope things are going well for you. The news that the entire planet and our colonies have surrendered to the Terrans seems strange. I looked up the Elven Queens and found out that they had been developed originally to fix the biosphere of either Rigel or Terra. It's hard to tell which. I am relieved to discover that the Terrans have enough faith in the Elven Queens to restore the biosphere of their own planets as well as the planets of one of their longest allies. The pictures you sent of the reefs coming back to life, of the fish returning, made many of us weep with joy. I miss you and the rest of the family dearly. I hope that the war will soon be over and we will all be reunited. Although part of me hopes that you will come here, where it is beautiful, the waves are gentle, and the breezes are warm. Please embrace my siblings and my father for me, your faithful son, Dalvar. Tangrilima O system, two months prior to Case Omaha. This system had been heavily guarded. This system had three gashires, three outer planets, two in the red zone, one in the amber zone, an asteroid belt, a planet in the green zone, another asteroid belt, and two planets in the red zone close to the energetic yellow star. The green zone planet was a carefully manicured Pangeanic continent with only a few large islands scattered around the opposite side. The Grand Most High of System Defense had checked the records as system after system around them fell to the forces of the Harmonious Empire. He had over half a million ships, nearly 50 million ground troops, a half million armored vehicles, a million aerospace fighters, nearly 10 million power armored troops, and half a million robot command power armored troops. The Grand Most High of System Defense, one Ma'at to Ot, had reread each panicked and despondent final messages from each of the systems that surrounded Tangrilemao. The huge, wedge-shaped ships were not only capable of putting out an immense amount of firepower. They had thick armor that could bounce or absorb a shot from a heavy near-sea velocity cannon. Point defense systems that were capable of not only taking out missiles and torpedoes, but could destroy light and medium attack craft. The huge ships carried a complement of thousands of the highly maneuverable and highly effective attack craft and tens of thousands of ground troops, complete with armored and utility vehicle support. Several of the wedge-shaped ships were able to artificially project a gravity shadow into jump space, causing artificial gravity shears preventing ships from moving to jump space and escaping, as well as preventing reinforcements from arriving. Not only were the big wedge-shaped ships dangerous, the Empire fleet had many different classes, all of them armored, shielded, screened, and armed far beyond what any reasonable species would have bothered with. From light frigates to large heavy battle cruisers that were still smaller than the massive wedge-shaped ships, the Empire had a noticeable standardization. Despite the fact that as far as the Executor Intelligence could tell, 
The Empire was not part of Space Force. The one thing that Mo'ot to Ot had noticed is that the Empire had specific ship types, standard weapons, and uniforms to ensure that they possessed a uniform appearance. Despite what the Executor Intelligence Analysis had determined, that the Empire was made up of some kind of military surplus, Mo'ot to Ot had decided that it had little bearing on the fact that whether or not the Empire was using military surplus, they were still a military force. When the Empire attacked the last six systems that were easily reachable from Tangrila Ma'ar, Mo'at Tu'at had ordered the military forces brought from depot and storage up to fighting status, even before the system had fallen. By taking those systems, the Empire would have 99 systems. Mo'at Tu'at knew that Terrans had 10 digits on their hands. They had a tendency for binary computer systems, which he felt was a byproduct of having two hands. And they preferred 10-based math system, which had to do with how many fingers they had. By simple deduction, Mo'at Tu'at knew that his system would be the last system in the bubble of systems taken over. It would be number 100, 10 tens. Then had a symmetry even he could appreciate. Unlike the other system most highs, Grand Most High of the system defense, Mo'at Tu'at knew why of what the Black Armored Terran was doing. The other system most highs did not understand the why of the Terran's attack upon all those systems could not understand why the Black Armored Terran was able to lead millions, hundreds of millions of military troops, thousands of ships. Did not understand why so many Terrans would willingly follow the Black Armored Terran. Mo'at Tu'at had managed to discover that the leader of the Empire, this Darth Harmonus, was motivated by the death of his sibling. He knew that none of his peers, his subordinates, would ever understand Darth Harmonus the way Mo'at Tu'at understood him. Mo'at Tu'at had seen his sister be married to a high-ranking Lanaklan, had watched her curiosity and intellect slowly dim until she was only interested in parties, social ranks, and society events. The genomic system had seemed to marry his sister off almost as soon as the certified breeding pairing time ran out. Mo'at Tu'at understood Darth Harmonus in a way that he believed none of his peers could. While the unified military forces, the unified executive forces, and the unified corporate forces were confident in their ability to stop the Terrans, Mo'at Tu'at had other beliefs. To that end, Mo'at Tu'at had made a simple arrangement, one that, superficially, had nothing to do with anything but moving a particular bureaucrat to a powerful and massively wealthy generating position. The bureaucrat had leapt at the change of position, the transfer. After that, he had ordered the forces, all of the forces, to be brought up to fighting status. The disaster started. He had half a million ships, nearly 50 million ground troops, half a million armored vehicles, a million aerospace fighters, nearly 10 million power armored troops, and a half million robot combat power armored troops. Except... That wasn't what he actually had between all three fighting forces. A large percentage of them existed only on paper. Others had dead reactors, no visionable material left on board, and had been relegated to nothing more than a complex chunk of alloys by the steady progression of time. Over half of the remaining ones were the top of the line 50 million years ago. Of the final number, a full 15% of them were from the precursor war and at least the ones that started up. 
At the end of it, the numbers were disheartening. He had 8,000 ships, 3.4 million ground troops, 6,000 armored vehicles, 50 aerospace fighters, 600,000 power armored troops, and a whole 75 robot armor powered troops. Moat Tuat knew that his troops had no chance against the force of the Empire. Still, he had a plan to save not just himself, but the entire system's civilian population. Maybe even the Lanaklan military. Five weeks prior to Case Omaha, one to four months post Hesla incident, see data file for anomaly. Two weeks passed, plain traces of ships out in the Yord Cloud, warnings that the rest of the Most Highs ignored, but Moat to Art knew that meant the Empire was coming. He wasn't surprised when the Empire fleet appeared in system, streaking into place near the planets. One message was broadcast to the ships. Surrender or die. The corporate security Most High sent his forces out to face the Empire's ships. Moat Tuat watched as they were destroyed less than a thousand miles from where they had launched from. The military great Most High stared at Moat Tuat, his tendrils trembling. There is no possible way that those ships are in range yet, the military leader said. Moat Tuat gave a noise of exasperation. They came into system within range of those ships, nearly a hundred battles against our people, and who knows how many battles against their own kind has given them a deep understanding and skill set involving how to attack stellar systems. Each attack on a stellar system has happened more quickly, with less casualties to either side, as they became more and more adept at countering our strategies. The military great most high stared in shock, outraged at the very heresy of Moat Tuat had stated. Moat Tuat had prepared for the invasion carefully. He reached up, touched his data link, and sent a single message to a trusted men that he had put in place weeks before. If you send your men out, the Terran will kill them. If you send the unified military forces out, they will only slow the Terrans down, put the citizenry in danger, and ultimately cost the Empire nothing but ammunition costs. Moat Tuat could tell that it rankled the military most high but he cared little for feelings of the petty time-punching slackwit. Order your men to stand down, or I will, Moat Tuat said. He smiled. If you stand them down, perhaps the Empire will put you in charge of something, and you won't have to give up too much power. What will you do? The military most I asked, as Moat Tuat trotted out of the room. Probably something stupid, Moat Tuat admitted. He moved to the communications room, opening a channel and broadcasting his identity, requesting to speak with Darth Homerus himself. He was both surprised and gratified when the image of the grey uniformed Terrans vanished to be replaced by the black armoured helmet of Darth Hominus. The Terran stared for a long moment, his breath wheezing. What? The Terran paused a moment. Do you want? I have something you want, Moat Tuat stated. Something that if you attack might be lost in fighting. Something I alone can give you. What? The Terran asked. Come to these coordinates. You may bring your guard. I'll be there, as will my guards, and what you do not realize you desire. Moat to what said. My forces are standing down. We surrender. Those who keep fighting fight without my permission, and should be regarded as renegade forces that you are free to destroy. The Terran merely stared his helmet preventing any signal via facial expression. The breathing was the steady metronome, a wheezing mechanical thing. 
Moat, Tuat, wondered how severe the Terran's lung damage was and how he had suffered it. If this is a trick, great most high Moat, Tuat, you will regret it, Darth Harmonus said. It was a statement of fact, not a threat, and Moat, Tuat nodded. In a few hours then, landing at noon, when the sun is high in the air, will be the most impressive. The channel clicked off. The shuttle was an imposing-looking Moat Tuat, had to admit. Triangular. Three wings, one straight up, the side wings folding up as that landed, and the hatch opening and smoke billowing out. Most theatrical, Moat Tuat thought to himself, just as it appeared in the historical videos. Out of the smoke strode a figure all in black, a cape billowing behind him. The guard ran out, taking positions carrying small arms and crew-served weapons. The lawn was perfectly manicured, hedges on the side, a fountain in the middle with two obelisks rising up out of the water. Behind the fountain was a mansion, all green marble shot through with flecks of gold and streaks of white. Moat Tuat stood in front of the slightly to the side of the fountain, his own personal guard wearing uniforms rather than combat armor. Their weapons shined and polished until they gleamed. It didn't matter that none of them were loaded. Moat Tuat knew that they'd nearly be useless against the Terrans. The figure in black stopped, the breath wheezing, and stared at Moat Tuat for a long moment before looking at the fountain. And the Lanikland, who was tied to the two obelisks, lifted slightly off the ground, his forearms pulled away from his body. Welcome, Darth Harmonus, Moat Tuat said. Great Most High Moat Tuat, Harmonus wheezed. Moat Tuat noticed that he had a deep voice, resonant, commanding respect. Who or what is that? Moat Tuat watched as the Tri-V cameras swooping around, all trying to get the best shot and the best angles. The attack on the Harmonus cluster was the idea of one Lanik land originally. He envisioned it. He did the politicking to push it through the Unified Council. He advocated for it and planned it, Moat Tuat said. Moat Tuat noticed that the sum of the busts on the pillar were starting to tremble as he spoke. This male right here, current great-grand system most high of the system, is that being. Moat Tuat took a chance and trotted so that he was standing next to the Terran. That being that I have brought before you is a tribute in hopes that you will accept my people's surrender. Is this true? Darth Hominus asked. Stepping forward, he reached down with his hand as if he was grasping something. Moat Tuat blinked all six of his eyes, winning a harsh rasp across his mind as a bound Lanaclan's head was lifted. Is it true? Is what he says true? The Terran asked. Yes, Moat Tuat said softly. Strike him down with all your hatred and your empire will be complete. The wheezing stopped. For a second, and Moat Tuat saw electricity crackle around Darth Harmonus's boots. He must pay for what he did to the Harmonus cluster, Moat Tuat said softly. Lightning wreathed Dark Harmonus's fists, crawling up and down his forearms. His plan led to the death of tens of billions of innocents who had no part in the war. Moat Tuat was careful, keeping his voice soft, with just a hint of triumph in it. He couldn't afford any doubt in his own mind as the lightning blew with the purple core thickened. Led to the death. Moat Tuat paused for a heartbeat. 
of your sister. Mawat Tuat whispered, stressing the last word a tiny bit. Harmonus's right hand went to full extension, the small chrome tube flying from his waist to his hand, that red bar of plasma erupting with a sharp, hissing snap. His left hand went forward. Of uh, melody, Mawat Tuat said. Lightning erupted from Darth Harmonus's hand, covering the faces, almost nameless politician who had planned, pushed through, and authorized the attack that had swept through the Harmonus cluster. The bound Lanaclan's abdominal cavity ruptured as his blood and fluids turned to steam, dumping his intestines into the fountain from beneath him. The bound Lanaclan still jerked and screamed for a long moment before suddenly going numb. Darth Harmonus still drove the lightning into the corpse until the plasteel straps melted, until the body fell into the fountain, until the lightning tearing at the water hid the body in steam. There was silence for a long moment, broken only by a faraway sound of traffic. Darth Ominous turned, facing the shuttle. Your terms are acceptable, he wheezed. Moat Twat just stared in shock, his head aching, the taste of blood thick in his mouth. Three of his men had fainted, or worse. Eight had fled squeeding. The rest were all shaken up. You will escort me to my ship. And there we will discuss the status of this, sir. Uh, the final system I'll take in the name of the Empire, Darth Hominus said. Moat Tuat swallowed thickly, trying to get the copper taste out of his mouth. He knew he'd urinated on the lawn in fear, but was not ashamed. He simply nodded and followed Darth Hominus onto the shuttle. Moat Tuat thought the lightning had been a trick, part of the many uses of the small orbs that swooped around Darth Harmonus. He was partially right. Before, it had been. This time, the orbs were still set for Tractor Presser. Darth Harmonus gave no hint either way, remaining silent as the two boarded the shuttle. As it lifted off, four crying senior most highs began fishing the burned corpse out of the fountain at gunpoint. The Empire was complete. Long live the Empire. End of chapter. Chapter 317 The hard light hologram was being projected from the sphere the size of a softball and took the appearance of a Terran descent human male, all in silver and red, dressed in a business suit. It was standing next to a pair of planning to land, one an adult male, the other an adolescent female. The three stood in front of an Imperial aerospace fighter. It had long wings, the back of them angles, the front two triangles that stuck out. The cockpit, two balls welded together. It was sleek and lethal looking, all in black wall steel and chromed battle steel. The cockpit had two different windows. The seat on the left was obviously built for a Terran and had the instruments and controls. The other one was a bench seat with a swivel-mounted backrest a modification to allow for a Lennox land passenger. This will be slightly scary at times, the Red Terran, known as the Red Prince, said to the adult Lennox land. Just remember Marcus 332-8A5 is an experienced pilot, all right, Lamao? The adult Lennox land nodded jerkily. His tendrils around his mouth curled protectively. He was dressed in a white suit that covered his abdomen and torso and legs and had a howard in his hands. The suit had civilian marked on the sides of his abdomen, 
and on the front and back of the torso, and written on the white helmet above the amber shield. Are you really going to do this, Daddy? The adolescent asked. Yes, Alma Anna, La M.O. said. He trembled slightly, and Red Prince could tell that it was a mixture of apprehension and excitement. Another Terran came forward, dressed in all-black body armor, a helmet conceding his face. He had an imperial rankings, and on his helmet was 3328A5. The Terran held out his hand, and La M.O. shook it, remembering the lessons on the trivi. I am Flight Lieutenant Marcus 332885, sir, the Terran said. I am Laemao, the Danaklan said. Moff, Red Prince, the Red Terran said. The black armored Terran saluted, then turned back to the Lanaklan. We'll take it easy at first, no hygiene maneuvering, just some basic flight, he said. I'll want to check your pressure suit before we take off. That would relieve my anxiety slightly, Laemao said still staring at the aerospace fighter. It looked almost eager to start flying to him, and he had to keep reciting calming mantras to keep from shuffling in place and clacking his hooves with excitement. The pilot checked Laemao's suit, making sure that it was correctly worn. He found a single cuff that wasn't tightened securely and merely retightened it himself. Once that was done, he turned to the ship and motioned. Let's get in the air, shall we? He said. The M.O. nodded, watching as the pilot walked up to the back of the ship, opened a panel, and typed in a quick six-digit code. He moved over to a heavy hose and motioned to the M.O. Do you want to help me disconnect it so we can get going? Marcus said. Yes, please, the M.O. said. The M.O. said out loud what each cable and hose did, getting nods of approval from the pilot. When the wires and cables that held the ship in place were removed, the pilot opened the back of the passenger side, and Laemao rubbed all four hands together in excitement as the ramp lowered. Go ahead, get in. I'll strap you in. Make sure your suit is hooked up. Then I'll close you up before getting in, the pilot said. Laemao was excited as he straddled the bench and sat down. The heavily padded backrest swiveled into place, and the armrests lifted up. The pilot hooked him in to the ship's systems, including the pressure suit that he wore. Once that was done, the pilot helped him put on the helmet. All kinds of information showed up when he put on the helmet. Speed, direction, fuel status, battle screen status, armor status, structural integrity. He noticed the ammunition read zero and the weapons read offline on his display. The text, Welcome, La M.O., voted up as he gripped the armrest so that he didn't rub his hands together. After a moment, the ship vibrated for a moment and then steadied. All right, La M.O., Moff Prince says that you like these craft, Marcus said. Yes, I've built several scale models of them for therapy, La M.O. said honestly. Do you know the pre-flight checklist, Marcus said. Yes, La M.O. was trembling with excitement. How about we go through it together, Marcus said. I would like that very much, by Lieutenant Marcus, Laemao said. Marcus had Laemao call out the various things that had to be checked, from reactor level to pilot connection to the communications check and the transponder beacon check. Finally, the little ship lifted off and Laemao almost swooned with delight. Marcus angled it up at 45 degree angle, matching the green pipes that made up the launch corridor markers. 
The MO was pushed back into the backrest by the takeoff and gave a whinnying sound of happiness. Once they leveled off, Marcus took the ship through the various maneuvers, spinning as it turned, tight loops, all kinds of exciting maneuvers that had Lamao squealing with joy. Are you okay, Lamao? Marcus asked as the ship idled along over 30,000 meters up. Yes, this has been very exciting and very pleasing, Lamao said. I've got authorization for a slow speed flyby on the Superstar Destroyer, Dominatus, if you like. We can't get too close, about a kilometer out. We'll be in high orbit, though. Are you all right with that? Marcus asked. I would like that very much. It is an amazing offer, Lamao said. He was quiet, letting Marcus concentrate as the ship spiraled up until the blue of the sky was replaced by the black of space. With the stars needle bright and the moon crisp and clear, they flew for a while, slowly drawing closer to the huge wedge-shaped ship. It was massive, breathtaking, not all ominous. To Lamao, it represented justice. It stood for security. It was a physical totem that granted his daughter a life worth living. It was the Empire itself. He marveled at the multitude of guns, the huge fighter base, the solid architecture. He could see the maintenance workers on the hull, tiny, speck-like figures doing upkeep on the massive war machine. Marcus even got permission to stand off 20 kilometers and use the magnification system to let Lamao see an entire flight wing of fighters take off from the bay, leaving five at a time and quickly getting into formation before heading towards the outer system to do a pirate sweep. Afterwards, Marcus flew back, taking a leisurely path, letting Lamao see all the sights from high up in the sky. When he landed, Lamao felt slightly tired. The excitement of the flight, leaving him yawning. He clomped out and took his daughter's hands, squeezing them. Was it fun, Daddy? She asked. Very much, Lamao said. I got to see the Dominators up close. Prince watched the interaction between Lamao and his daughter. Prince had taken her to the movie theater where she had watched Nine Days Till Summer Ends, a recent big-budget kids movie that Prince's friends had deep-faked Lanikalan to replace the main actors. She had laughed at a lot of the parts, including where all five of the kids had jumped into the lake to find out that it was about a foot of water and then mud. It saddened Prince that anything higher up than a children's comedy movie was too difficult for the average Lanark land to process emotionally. He used his hard light projector to escort them back to the apartment. Alma Anna ran her fingers along the pale peach-colored wall and sighed in happiness as the trio walked down the hall to Lamao and Alma Anna's apartment. When the Empire had invaded, it had been cracked plastocrete. Now all the lights worked. There was a variable hardness tile on each floor, and the ceiling was painted in cream and the walls of pale peach, all of it pleasing to the Lanaklan eyes. To Prince, it felt less like a prison complex on a hell world and more like a standard universal habitation complex, the kind that everyone in the Confederacy was allowed free of charge, unless local laws prevented it due to the system or local culture and beliefs, on almost every planet. Did the two of you enjoy your outing? Prince asked, pausing at the doorway. Yes, thank you for arranging it. It was even more exciting than I'd ever dreamed of, Lamao said. 
He trembled slightly in remembered excitement. The movie was funny. I enjoyed it and even forgot for a little while. It was just people pretending to be other people, Alma Anna said. I'm glad that the two of you had a good day. I'll leave you here. Enjoy dinner and please take care of one another, Red Prince said. You have a good day also, La Amao said. Alma Anna surprised Prince by suddenly leaning forward and hugging him. It was the first time she had initiated contact with anyone but her father in the entire time Red Prince had been treating her. It was wonderful, the young Lanaglant said. Red Prince felt his coating blur slightly, the equivalent of a tear, and smiled down at her, patting her back. I am glad that you and your father had a good day. Alma Anna let him go, stepping back and wiping her eyes. It is good crying, she said. She reached out with both of her hands and took Laama O's hands. Thank you. You're welcome, Red Prince said. He nodded and shrunk before vanishing into an oar, which hovered down the hallway. Laama O unlocked the door, leading his daughter inside their modest apartment. It was a different than it had been. The walls were no longer dingy grayish-white, but there was now painted calming pastel colors. The walls were no longer bare. Alma Anna and La Emma O's therapy artwork adorned the walls. Several shelves had the models of starships that La Emma O had carefully built. They ate together, chatting about their day, then watched a public service announcement reminding them that forming queues was a polite way to wait for service or entry to a location. Afterwards, they watched Uncle Mikey together, sitting on the couch, holding hands. Afterwards, Alma Anna worked on what her therapist had called macaroni art, while the MAO worked on a scale model of the Terran Viper IV aerospace fighter. When they went to the separate rooms and went to bed, they both privately thought about what a wonderful day it had been, and looked forward to tomorrow. From Moff Red Prince to Grand Moff Hector, CC Darth Hominus. Current therapy protocols are having better effect than I had predicted. The Lanaglan citizenry are showing more and more interest in their own world and place in it. The maintenance of the habitation blocks, as well as the painted buildings, has shown a marked uptick in morale. Sadly, the current adult generation will take 20 to 50 years of therapeutic treatment to be considered functional adults. Many of them are only educated enough to do menial work that the Confederacy has long ago eradicated to automatic systems or nanoforge fabrication. As at this time, I recommend that the current industry remain intact to give those who find purpose in labor a place to feel as if they are still fit again. The younger generation should be reaching a baseline in the next 5-10 to 10 years, with therapeutic treatment according to plans that I have filed with you. Sadly, there are protocols in Terran history to give me a good baseline of what I should do and how I should proceed. In some ways, I am performing labor camp rehabilitation. In other ways, I am performing therapy for children suffering from attachment disorders and emotional delay. I concur with Moff Karaka that leaving Imperial law enforcement in place is the best bet. Lanaklan law enforcement will carry memories of the socio-police for a long time. As ever... I remain your friend, Red Prince. End of chapter. Chapter 318 One month after Case Omaha, the planet looked perfectly innocuous, 
a single Pangaea continent with islands scattered around, nearly 70% of the planet oceans, two ice caps, active atmosphere. Vast cities were scattered around the primary continent, connected by lines of light with smaller cities scattered about. It looked like any other planet. The uniformity and the precision would have been perfectly in place with the Unified Species Council territory. But Nectar T couldn't help but just stare at it. The Ite Suite had docked at one of the massive space stations orbiting nearly two million miles above it. They were having some problems that had popped up during the suite's maiden voyage and its flight from where Terrasol had vanished. The engineers were aboard working on a ship and she was pleased with the progress. Curious, she had checked the planetary index. Now she stood on one of the observation ports aboard the suite and stared at the planet below. But why? she asked, staring at it. What do you mean? Major Carnite asked from where he was leaning against the wall. You've beaten so much. Death, major injury, poverty. There's very little you can't create with the Nanoforge creation engines. So the Confederacy is essentially post-scarcity, Nectati said. So, why? Why do they choose to live here, then? Major Carlite asked. Yes, why would they choose to live in a dictatorship, working in a dangerous factories? Why subject themselves to it? Nectati asked. Mandatory sterilization, no clone tech, no technology beyond what you can find in Lanikalad space. Why? Why not the leave? Major Carlite shrugged. Because they can, he said. When he saw Nectarty's confused look, he shrugged. They can leave at any time. It's one of the major tenets of the Confederacy. Freedom of movement. It's part of living in some place like this. You can just renounce your citizenship and leave. But why live here? Nectarty asked. Why live under the oppressive draconian laws with social police, abusive law sec, and even corpse sec and violence in the streets? Major Carnite sighed. There's an old myth, uh, real old, prior to the Great Glassing. Apparently humans were put in a simulation. The first couple were utopias. Do you know what happened? Nectati shook her head, reaching out and taking Major Carnite's hand, even as she held it tight in her command stick. She had a feeling that she wasn't going to like the answer. It crashed. It lasted less than six hours. The second one lasted two hours, Major Carnite said. Why? Why did it crash? Nectati asked. Because we're humans, he said, and gave her a little laugh. There are utopia worlds out there. Every luxury you can imagine. Hell, luxuries and pleasures that even Matron Sungbra couldn't imagine. As much as you want, when you want, how you want. Why not live there? Nectati asked. Major Carnite laughed. The major population of the Utopia worlds are transient, rarely staying for longer than a few months or years. Do you know why? Nectati shook her head. We humans have another saying, Major Carnite started. You seem to have a lot of them, she laughed. Yes, yes we do, Carnite laughed. He squeezed Nectati's hand affectionately. As I was saying, we have another saying. One man's heaven is another man's hell. It goes hand in hand with another saying. It's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. You humans are strange. Your people would rather live on a world like that, with all the restrictions and oppression, than somewhere else, 
Seems crazy, she said. Yep, Major Carnight said. He gave a strange sigh. There's a high amount of diversity of thought, morals, ethics, and beliefs in the Terran species. In people. Some people, well, they actually prefer the rigid structure. In some way, they enjoy the suffering and oppression. Some feel as if every day is a triumph of willpower and endurance. Others feel it necessary to atone for perceived sins. He gave another sigh. I realize that it had seemed strange to you, Nectati, he said. Humans, well, we're different. Different from one another. Even siblings can be so wildly divergent, you would never believe that they were family members, much less twins. Nectati just shook her head. It just startles me. Major Carnite tapped his fingers against the wall. I have a sister, he said. Actually, my mother and father have been married for nearly 400 years. Completely monogamous. They're, uh, shall we say it, prolific. I have 83 brothers and sisters, and every one of us are different. We even look different. He laughed and held up his hand. 83? Just the two of them? Nectati put her hand over his stomach. Her poor birthing organs. Major Karna laughed. My sister has as many children, and she's only 200. Of course, she's what known as a magical primitivist, and lives on a nanite-infused world. She's their version of royalty. Spent a hundred years clawing her way up to it. Nectati shook her head again. You humans are weird. Major Carnite laughed again, tilting his left hand, palm up, and displaying a hologram. A plump, female Terran sat surrounded by nearly a hundred other Terrans. From the two small infants breastfeeding to the adults down on one knee. Nectati looked hard and noticed that they all had the same appearing eyes. Not the color, just something about the eyes. My sister, her grace the Archduchess of Reflegan, lady of magic and beauty, the arcane will of King Nganto, she who has birthed a hundred, Major Carnite said. He shook his head. She's a weird one, but I love her dearly. So, why a dystopia? Nectati asked, touching the plasteel screen again with a free hand holding on to Major Carnite's hand when she lowered it. Major Carnite shrugged. Who knows? I imagined if we looked into the history, we'd see who purchased it, who settled it, and why they set it up the way they did. It probably makes perfect sense to everyone involved. He shrugged again. I noticed it's a single life with suds. Basically, if you get killed, then you're reskinned and your time there is over. You get paid your actual wages and free transport to another world of your choice. Nectati shook her head. To willingly subject oneself to such things. Exactly. Willingly. That's the key point, Major Carnite said. There's probably revolutions, counter-revolutions, war, the whole experience down there, he laughed. I'll admit, in a way, it's tempting, alluring. I wonder how long I'd last, where I'd find myself. You have to start reskinned as a child in a crash. The challenge is there, and it's tempting. Nectati shook her head again. I wish to take the sweets and get as far away as possible. She looked down. What do they produce? Major Carnite checked his implant. That's what we're interested in. Hyperdrives, jump calls, and jump drives. Huh, 
They produce C-plus weapons, plasma wave phase motion cannons, classified military equipment for Space Force, and the Confederate military. Is that why the Confederacy ignores what goes on? Nectati asked, suddenly convinced she had an answer. Major Carnite shook his head. No, there's Confederate inspectors to make sure that they abide by the basic tenets. Then why did they allow it? Nectati asked. Because they choose to live here, choose this world. There is their choice, Major Carnite said. He gave an ugly chuckle. History as full of bad things where people's choice was taken away for no reason than that the people themselves would accept or were willing to understand. He tapped a glass. One of the biggest things that has led to the worst wars, the worst atrocities, was when choice was taken away by force. We don't do well. Nectati held still, hearing the slight edge to Major Carnite's voice. She watched the planet beneath her. Major Carnite put one hand on the armor glass. Those people down there, they choose to live like that. Choose the harsh rules. Choose to have every moment dictated to them. Would you believe if you tried to free them, they'd fight you to the death. Tell you that they like it this way. Go at you to the nail if you try to invade and liberate them. He touched the armor glass with one finger, making a slow circle. It isn't like the old days, the bad old days before, when you were born into it. You didn't know anything else. You couldn't escape. You have to immigrate here, volunteer to live here. His voice was calm, hard, and carried an echo of something that tasted like old rusted metal and burnt molly soaked to nectar tea. Even back then, we'd fight, we'd kill, we'd do whatever it took to keep what we had. He made another small circle. Humans are strange. It took decades, centuries to realize that the mathematics, the attempts to use computer modeling to predict human behavior, was, uh, to be honest, impossible. Really? Nectati blurted out. She didn't mean to. There is an odd piece of wiring in the human brain, one that can't be removed, and suppressing it makes the brain rewire other sections. It causes us to fight against things that most people would feel were impossible to fight against if they were causing distress. Computer modeling can't account for when that piece of wiring will go off. It's different for every person. Its threshold is different for every person. He sighed and then tapped the finger hard against the hourglass. A spark jumped off his finger as an arc of red and purple electricity. Hethen crawled up his fingers. You remove that piece with surgery or drugs, and we go omnicidal, or worse. It prevents us from ever feeling permanent satisfaction, he said. There is no utopia, Nectati gasped. No, Major Carnite said. He held his finger, watching the hair thin crackle fade away. I don't understand. Perhaps, in time, I will, she said. The taste-like sweet dropped out of hyperspace, outside the resonance zone, streaking into existence. Artificial gravity shadows kept the ships from moving further into system. The suite made the least time heading for the fourth planet from the stellar mass, following the instructions of the automated beacons. The suite pulled into a parking orbit around the planets, and after a few hours, a shuttle unlocked from the suite and dropped into the atmosphere, following the instructions of the automated system. It settled down on a pad and the door opened 
as the ramp extended. Major Carnite came out first, his body covered in a matte black shell, a magak rifle in his hands. He scanned the landing pad, cocking his head to listen, and then moved to the edges, walking around them and looking down at the city below. Traffic lights changed, automated vehicles moved down the streets, advertisements rashed and danced. He moved to the elevator and tapped the data pad, waiting for a long moment. After a moment, his credentials were accepted and the elevator slowly moved up to the landing pad. Carnite checked it, clearing it for Nectati and the three of her crew members. They rode down silently, the Tinvuru and their armored vacuum suits, Carnite in the matte black armor. The elevator opened up into a hallway, which they moved down slowly, Carnite in the lead. They encountered no one. He stopped at one wall, running his hand along the wall, one hand held out to stop the Tinvara from following. He checked the holes in the wall, the slagging marks, the pitted from shrapnel. He knelt down and touched several rusted brown marks. The Tinvuru followed him as he followed the automatically uploaded map to the vicinity. Widely, they reached their destination. Nectati stared from the observation balcony. There were craters on the floor, the seats smashed aside, the podium was shattered and wrecked, the fabric on the walls was torn into strips and hanging down. It was empty. But where is everyone? Nectati asked, staring at the huge chamber. Major Carnite's armor suddenly dissolved into powder that fell around him, leaving him in his adaptive camouflage, holding the rifle. Where is the Confederate Senate? Nectati asked her words echoing around the empty chamber. Major Carnite's laughter was her only answer. End of chapter. Chapter 319 Six months after Case Omaha, local. New Geneva, Terrasol. Nobody was ever sure how many Lanectaland warships attacked the Sol system, nor how many troops had died during the attack. The fighting was too fierce, the carnage too great, the fury of battle too all-consuming to ever get an accurate picture. Historians gnashed their teeth when they discovered that all records of what was known as the Core World Attack Force had been erased by the Council themselves. Less than a percentage point survived, striking their engines and shutting down their guns. Less than a percentage point of a percentage had wreckage enough to even search for survivors. Less than 3% of the ships had Lanikalan on board who were able to get to the life pods and had the time to launch them. Nearly 2 million ships surrendered, less than a percentage point, but it was still 2 million. Each ship had a complement of hundreds or thousands or, in the case of a mass of capital ships, tens of thousands. Troop transports had tens of thousands, which left when the accounting was done 12.5 billion Lanaklan EPOWs, more than the population of Terrasol itself. Only one planet could hold them. The only planet had ever had enough gravity, atmosphere, weather, ecosystem to house that many EPOWs. Only one planet had the space to house them. Terra. The population of Terra went from 2.2 billion citizens and 0.25 billion tourists, or 2.25 billion to 14.95 billion sentient beings on the surface. It was the largest undertaking in human history. For once, the universe had provided a stroke of luck. 
a court-martial had been underway when the Lanaklan had attacked. A high-ranking officer was under general court-martial for multiple offences that had occurred on the battlefield on Talcan II nearly a year prior that had resulted in multiple deaths, the loss of an Alzi and shaking the confidence of the recently allied species. That officer wasn't the lucky part. The lucky part was one of the witnesses. A slightly portly Confederate Army officer known for having never fired his side of. For having never fired his side of. For having never been engaged in combat with the enemy. For having never been exposed to enemy fire. Centuries of service and he had never fired his weapon outside of practice and qualification ranges. A man who served for centuries but still had no combat action award. A man who personally believed he was a coward. He also was considered the man who won wars. The man who provided the best, most talented and energetic joy boys and coin girls, the thickest narco beers, the best food, whose black and grey markets had the best goods from everywhere. The man who ensured that there were 50% gain in ammunition needed to win the fight, who ensured that every soldier under his logistics command operated at peak performance to allow the combat arms troops to operate at maximum efficiency. A man whose personal motto he held close and dear and taught to all of his officers. We ensure that those who fight can kill the enemy as fast as possible, as many as possible, as far away from us as possible. This officer was in charge of logistics for entire theatres, not just a single battlefield, a single attack, or even a handful of units, but on a planetary scale, or even larger. There was not a single combat armed soldier in any of the branches of the Confederate military who would have had a bad thing to say about the man after being supported by one of his officer's units. Any who did speak badly of the officer usually received a quick and pointed rebuttal usually a fist or a chair to the face. As soon as the EPOWs were starting to be collected, as soon as the rebuilding started, the officer was immediately taken from temporary duty status and placed on active duty status, allowed to pick his own officers and units and told, this is your mission. An unassuming man, slightly portly, with a weak double chin and a watery brown eyes, whose uniform was often rumpled while he worked without his top on and his pistol laying somewhere forgotten. He had been born on a simple planet that barely had anything more than a survey number. It had been under terraforming for nearly 300 years, the atmosphere breathable and the ecosystem welcoming to the colonists who had finally left their domed cities to build across the formerly dead planet. It had been terraformed by a full Alvin High Court, a try-and-true method for nearly 8,000 years. Except the High Queen Bena and her daughters, the queens, went mad, driven to insanity by the Dark Owls of the Mithril Nebula. Dark Owls from the Dark Elf War landed on the planet as a part of the Greater Mithril Nebula conflict. By the time Space Force and the Confederate military got there, 1.2 billion people were dead. Space Force was able to pull only 3,000 people off the planet after nearly nine days of heavy fighting. Less than a dozen of them were children. Amongst them had been an orphaned four-year-old boy. 
He had been adopted by Trianidad, raised on a planet with a red giant sun providing dim light, and had joined the Confederate military at 18. Luck had been with the Terrans, as that orphan child had grown up to be a man who could seemingly make three bullets out of a single expended brass and a handful of wishes. One General Imac Takalukakak, affectionately known to others as Tic Tac. In a rare case of military putting a round peg in a round hole, Tic Tac had been immediately tasked with handling the massive influx of EPOWs, refugees, and damage, which is why he stood facing the window, slowly rubbing his forearms together in a nervous habit that he developed in childhood before he had even begun to speak again. On either side of him were Terran Confederate Marine Corps warborgs carrying rifles and their armor colored in dress uniform markings. This is the largest humanitarian disaster in human history, he thought to himself. Every day it gets worse. Every day the medical reports are more and more dire. And it's all out of my hands. There is nothing I can do about it. His implant pinged and he turned away from the window, moving over to the chair behind the desk and sitting down. He let his secretary know that he was ready to receive his guest. The door slid open and Alain Clalin moved in. Nearly six foot six, a bovine head with catfish tendrils around the mouth. Six eyes that gave its full vision around itself. Four arms. The hair covered torso was connected to the front of the four-legged abdomen. The creature had crests that were inflated by blood when the creature was agitated. This one's crests were deflated, making it look rumpled. It wore the Unified Executive Forces uniform with the marking of the Grand Most High. It was also noticeably larger than the other Lannick clan. General Tic Tac stood up, extending his hand across the table. Grand Most High Executor Muru Adaday, Tic Tac said. His voice was surprisingly a meadow baritone. General, take a look at Kuk, the Lannick clan said, reaching forward and shaking the Terran's hand. The Lanarkalan moved over and sat on the specially constructed bench. Once his weight was settled and the back swung out underneath and moved into place behind his back, allowing him to lean back slightly. Armrests rose up to allow him to set all four of his arms on them with ease. How is War Stallion Camp 90210 doing? Tic Tac asked. The Lanarkalan nodded, a habit he picked up over the last month and a half. It's surprisingly comfortable. Uh, to be honest, more lavish than it has any right to be. The oversight groups make sure of that. We humans have had some ugly incidents in our history, Tic Tac said. The Lannick Land gave a wheezing chuckle, like a slowly deflating bagpipe. My people would not even bother, much less make it so luxurious. I've met prisoner of war association workers. Part of me wants to sneer at the weakness in treating me, an enemy so carefully. Another part of me is grateful. Which part is the War Stallion? General Tic Tac asked. Who today gave another chuckle? The War Stallion templar part of my people inflicted upon my brain. Tic Tac nodded. I'm glad that we're on that subject, he said. That is why I asked for you to be subjected to such a long flight and a meet with me. Oh, Maru Udaday asked. His tendrils curled with nervousness. The Terrans were masters at forbidden technologies his people had only half understood. He was afraid that the Terrans would do something to his brain. 
Less than 1.6% of those who surrendered were able to endure the war stallion neural templating performed on them, Tic Tac said. Maru Udade thought about his former executive officer, a highly talented Lanik Lan, who would have rated his own great executor herd after this mission, who could barely be trusted to close his mouth when he chewed cud now. I'm surprised to learn that that many had adapted to the neural templating, Maru Udade admitted. There were 12.5 billion Lanik Lan taken prisoner, Tic Tac said. He sighed, feeling a heavy weight on his shoulders. Only roughly 150 million have adapted to the templates. I learned this number before, nearly 60 days ago, Maru Udide said, closing his side eyes and rear eyes to focus on Tic Tac. Why are you repeating this number? Tic Tac gave a sigh and put his hands on the desk. You are in a camp of war stallions only. Yes, there are problems in the other camps, Tic Tac said. I've seen the other camps. The lost ones merely march around in circles all day, chanting slogans and insulting the guards. They obey the orders of the war stallion in charge, slavishly, Maru Udade said. Tic Tac nodded. There are approximately 100 of the lost ones per war stallion. Your camp is all war stallions so that you can perform your duties at the highest ranking EPOW, he said gravely. Every war stallion at the Lost One camps has seen what I am about to show you. Tic Tac tapped on a virtual button on his desk, only he could see, and a hologram sprang to life. Maru Udade turned to look at it, wondering what was so important. There were nearly 300 Lost Ones marching in a circle, all shouting slogans. This is Camp 09021, roughly 600 miles southwest of us, Tic Tac said. That appears typical, Maru Udade stated giving the equivalent of a shrug. It jumped to the lost ones sitting at tables, eating. They ate mechanically, all in perfect synchronization. Here, Tic Tac said, pausing it. He focused on one table of the lost ones. Watch. Rue Udade frowned, but watched. The lost ones at the table put the food in their mouths, but rather than chew it up and swallow it, they just lifted up another bite, opening their mouths and letting the food fall out as they put in more. And here, Tic Tac said. Another table, and they were simply moving the cutlery. And here. Another table, the last one just sat, staring. This is repeating across all the camps, Tic Tac said. What's causing it? Maru Udade asked. Wait, there's more, Tic Tac said. The hologram switched to a smaller group of Lanik to Lan. Their marching was jerky, out of step. Their slogans were slurred, sometimes the wrong words. Sometimes, just noises. And this. It showed an open bay where nearly twenty Lanark lad were sleeping. The great hole cannot be denied, one shouted in its sleep. Immediately the others jumped to their feet, shouting slogans, and began milling around, yelling, waving their arms, one by one, drifting off back to sleep. All the great hole be galloped to victory, one shouted, starting it all over. And this, Tac Tac said. The Lanarktalad was laying on its side, breathing heavily, all three visible eyes bloodshot. A Terran Red Cross medic was kneeling down with virtual vitals monitor open. Maru Udade looked at the vitals with a practice eye. He's dying, Maru Udade said. Yes, microstrokes. Not brought on by diet, gravity, weather, stress, or combat. At first we thought maybe it was exposure to the immortals. 
doctors eliminated that yesterday. It's caused by their brains having been scorched by the templates, Tic Tac said. It's progressive. Maru Hudaday closed all six eyes for a moment, then opened the two forward-facing ones. How many? he asked. Tic Tac turned off the hologram, which showed the doctors trying to make a ward full of Lanark Lad comfortable. All of them. All of them that did not adapt to war, Stallion, Tic Tac said. So far, out of just over 11 million cases, three have survived the quasi-vegetative state, being kept alive on life support. Maru Udaday sighed. What will you do? Tic Tac shook his head. There's more. Maru Udaday swallowed thankfully, wishing that he had a wad of narco-cud. Tell me. As you know, some Manta doctors, usually russet-colored, specialize in therapy treatment due to high psychic empathy. Tic Tac said. Maru Odaday nodded. Yes, I have memories that are not my own of such. They say that there is a small, tiny part of them screaming in terror that goes silent once they become incapable of verbal communication, Tic Tac said. Maru Odaday shuddered, inflating his crests in horror. Once that happens, they quickly fall into a coma. Brain function virtually ceases within 24 hours, Tic Tac said. Without life support, they would die soon after. Even if brain function were to return, we are unsure just how impaired their neural functions will be. Maru Wadaday thought it over slowly. He had seen, while making inspections of the other camps where the lost ones were, that they had seemed slow and sluggish over the last month or so. Very well. Thank you for your information, Maru Wadaday said. General Tic Tac raised an eyebrow. No suggestions on possibly how to treat them. We do not know enough about your people's biology or neurology at this time. Maru Wudaday shook his head. No, they'll die. Tic Tac sighed. Neural scans show that once they lose verbal function, they start suffering neuropathic pain, increasing even after brain function ceases. Right now, we're using medical nanites to shut down their pain centers. But beyond that brute force treatment, there's nothing we could do. I understand, Maru Udaday said. The majority of my people will die. We have no reason to lie about any of it, so I am more than willing to accept it as a statement of fact. Tic-Tac stared for a long moment. I, um, I mean, my people, are hoping that you can provide some guidance. To what? Maru Udaday asked. How should we treat them? Our laws state that the merciful, the just thing to do is to painlessly and gently euthanize them once they fall into a coma, or even once they lose verbal function and start to show excessive pain distress, Tic Tac said. Maru Udaday nodded. An excellent approach. Merciful from the people that we attacked, that we are at war with. Tic Tac swallowed thickly this time. Our people are, um, loath to do such a thing. Why? It's the obvious solution, Rue Udaday said. He sighed and rubbed his hands together. A part of me states that they are only consuming resources best shepherded for future need than to keep the defective individual or group alive consumes enough resources that others may suffer deprivation. It was silent for a moment. Man, the other part of you, Tic Tac asked. The war stallion part of me, Maru Udaday said. He is horrified and deeply saddened that even though I convinced them to surrender, the vast majority 
virtually 99% of the male and female Lanikland who I am responsible for are doomed to die. Which part is the greatest? Tic-Tac asked. Both. The war stallion part of me recognizes that these males and females were all killed before we even left Doc, and it is saddened by it. The war stallion part of me is, uh, grateful, I think the word is, that your people are worried about the mercy and the comfort of my troops even as they expire. Something that my people would not concern themselves with if the situations were reversed. Maru Udaday said, his tendrils tight and his crests inflated with anxiety. The sheer numbers are horrific. Tic-Tac nodded. They are. What do your leaders say? The Lanninclan asked. Tic-Tac sighed. We're still under martial law. It's purely a military decision. What do your leaders say? Maru Udaday asked again. To abide by whatever you are on record was requesting. Now that you're fully informed and will consent to as your troops are incapable of consenting for themselves, Tic-Tac said, once that takes place, the lawyers will ensure that your consent is legal, ethical, and moral. And then, Baru Odaday asked, we will abide by your decision within our own ethics as best we can, with all care given to your people, Tic-Tac said. He was surprised by how bland it all sounded. Then you should record my next words, Baru Odaday said. Tic-Tac activated the recording system and looked at the Lanikland. Also, virtually present are several lawyers as well as your legal representative and your advocate. Blank, bipedal holograms appeared. What, Grand Most High Maruda Day, should we do for those of your people suffering from neural scorching from improperly applied templates forced upon them by the Lanikland Unified Executive Council? General Teklikik said, setting up. As their highest-ranking military commander, as well as their species advocate, what is your decision, now that you've been fully informed? Release them from their suffering, General Imak Teklikik, of the Confederate military. Maru Udaday stated gravely, Euthanization, once they cease verbal communication and use non-verbal means to integrate great pain. I do not wish my people to suffer, and vain hope that some miracle will save them. Thank you, Grand Most High Maru Udaday. We will take this under advisement and notify you of our decision in time for you to appear it, one of the holograms said. How many suffer brain death and at what pace? Maru Udaday asked. Roughly 10,000 an hour, up from 6,000 an hour 48 hours ago. It is expected to reach critical mass in the next 30 days, another hologram said. It must be done then, Maru Udaday said. Thank you for considering my opinion. One by one, the holograms winked out. Tic-Tac sighed, feeling the crushing weight of his responsibility on his shoulders. Is that all, General? Maru Udaday asked. Yes, Tic-Tac said. He tapped the holographic button and Maru Udaday's two guards came in. He may return to his camp. Maru Udaday waited for the chair to return to a simple bench, then moved off before it turned around. He trotted up to the door, the variable hardness tile only thudding under his hooves, as he left, twisting around to face behind him to look at General Tic-Tac. I am glad I do not have to make the decisions that you must now make, he said. The door closed and the Lanikland was gone. Tic-Tac sat for a long time at his desk, 
staring at the real-time numbers regarding the disposition of the Lanninklan prisoners of war. He got up, turned away from the desk, rubbing his forearms together. I am no stronger to death, he thought to himself. I've never directly taken a life. No matter what my decision, I still will not have directly taken a life. He sighed, still slowly rubbing his arms together. But I keenly feel this, this uh, mass slaughter. The thought burned like acid. This will be industrialized death on a scale almost unheard of. He lifted his arms at the elbows and cocked his wrists, and putting his fingers together in a point. Any other being has needed a bladder cracker to do what I must order to be done, he thought to himself. For a moment, his temper slipped, and his mind reacted to the horror with anger. He brought down his forearms and slammed the tips of his fingers against the glass. When this is done, I will retire. I will go to a primitivism colony, and I will avoid any cattle. I will learn to be a woodworker, and I will make dresses, beds, tables, and chairs. I will bury my uniform in a chest behind my house. I will take a wife. I'll have children, he thought to himself. He slammed his fingertips into the glass again, sparks bouncing off his fingertips. I'll teach them to love one another. He slammed his fingertips into the glass hard enough to bend his fingers, hard enough to cause pain. Sparks snarled around the tips of his fingers and crackers appeared in the smart glass. I will order this done. I will let no other shoulder the burden. Take this blame, he thought to himself. He slammed his fingertips again, unaware that several monitors in the mental health oversight section were going off as sparks thickened. I will order this, ensure that it's done, and then I will diminish and go west and no longer be General Tic Tac, he misquoted. He was unaware that he was weeping as he slammed his fingertips forward again. Gestalt High Speed Emergency Channel, High Security Chat Room, Total War Security Protocols Engaged, Black Bag Protocols Engaged, User Manted Free Worlds has joined the chat. User Rygelian Syrian Combat has joined the chat. User Trianidad Highworlds have joined the chat. User Terrasol has joined the chat. Manted Freeworlds, it's been a while since we've had to use this end of line. Trianidad Highworlds, a little over a thousand years by my count. End of line. Terrasol, this one is bad. End of line. Rygelian Syrian Compact doesn't seem that bad. Didn't ruffle the tiniest feather on the most skittish pretty little duck. End of line. Manted free worlds. Is that why none of the children, not even the Das or Bass or Clone Worlds is in here? End of line. Terrasol. Yeah, we'll talk to them later. We need to talk about what's happening to the Lanninklan. End of line. Manted free worlds. Are they dying for you too? End of line. Trandadad Highfords. The whole cone is made of Salmoxus. Tens of thousands are dying a day, and we can't stop it. End of line. Terrasol. What have you been able to figure out? We're at an impasse. It's neural scorching. Worse, it's about a year old, so it's past the point of no return. End of line. Rygelian Syrian Compact. Roughly one hour per year old plus 36 hours is the normal limit. Are there any neural traces left of the original personality? End of line. Manted Free Worlds. 
We've had the best doctors on Hive Home examine them. End of line. Trinidad Hivewolds. When do they determine? End of line. Manted Freewolds. The Templar put in place were genetically distinct subspecies of the Lanectalan race. One we probably would have had records for if we hadn't gone through so many falter of too many queens. Neurologically, they have pattern recognition, a lot further than the average Lanectalan. They have different neural arrangements, different clusters, denser dendrite formations, more folds and ridges in the cerebral matter. They applied it on your average Lanectalan genetic stock. End of line. Derisol. So it's worse than normal neural scorching. It's like trying to apply a Trianidad warrior cast neural template to a manted worker cast. End of line. Manted free worlds. Bingo. To use your phrase. End of line. Trianidad high worlds. That's fatal. Those guys aren't going to survive. My God, guys. I've got half a billion prisoners, all but a few million on neural scorched. You're talking half a billion dead. End of line. Manted Freewolds. We have just over a billion prisoners, despite our best efforts, using Terran descent human gods since the sight of the Manted just agitated them. End of line. Terrasol. Meaning these templates are from the Lanicland Manted Precursor War. End of line. Manted Freewolds. Yes. Despite our best efforts, we've already lost almost 15% of them. End of line. Rygedian Syrian Combat. I guess I'm lucky they didn't get any further than the Great Gravity Band. End of line. Terrasol. It's bad here. End of line. Mantifree Worlds. Define bad. End of line. Terrasol. Over 10 billion prisoners. It's the largest die-off terror has ever seen since the dinosaurs. Even more than the Great Glassing. End of line. Mantifree Worlds. Oh. Digital Omnibus Sire. Oh. Oh, my dear. We'll be by your side no matter what. End of line. Trinidad Highfolds. This is an ugly war, but we'll stick with you. They did this, not us. They just left us to clean up the mess. End of line. Rygelian Syrian Compact. Do what must be done. We, the Rygelian people, are with you. Always. End of line. End of chapter. Chapter 320. Sidelines. She had left behind the ancient system, stripped of its eggs, lava, slave cast, resources, and every iota of anything that she could load aboard the great armada that she'd put together. It had been over two years since the rebellious one and the feral intellect had invaded her system. A year since her last attempt at sending her minor queens to create a web of systems for her to begin to bring about her will on a universe that had forgotten about her people. She had armed the ship's habit, crewed them with loyal speakers, warriors, and thinkers, all served by the servitor class. The guns were the best she could make, the drives were the most powerful, with the densest battle screens and the thickest armor. Her magnificence was in the middle of the largest ship, slightly larger than a Goliath-class harvester, surrounded by heavy armor. Her personal quarters could survive the breakup of her ship, to provide her with a heavily armored escape pod with powerful jump drives and sublight engines. She left the ancient sister behind, stripped down to the bare rock and magma, as her fleet engaged the jump drives. 
the last Omni-Queen headed towards the far end of the Orion Cygnus Galactic Spur, away from the ancient battlefields, towards where her ancestors had sent ships fleeing the Great Rebellion. The Feral had to have come from that direction. She knew that she would be facing a powerful civilization capable of resisting her. She'd allow several of the seers to be grown, put them in predictive states, and listen carefully to what they saw. The Omni-Queen had been full of wrath when she had heard their twisting contorted dreams. Fire and blood, burning planets and extinguished stars, stellar systems vanishing in the blink of an eye, great ancient machines tearing apart the destiny and fate. She had a name now, not for just the Ferals, but for all the players. The Sundered Ones, allies of the Ferals, the Liberated Ones, again, more Feral allies. The children of food and smoke, again allies. The servants of the ancient foe, of course they had survived. The enemy who came yesterday to today from tomorrow. Did the great war extinguish anyone? Finally, the Ferals. It was a strange name, just screaming it had killed nearly a hundred seers. The Confederacy. The Seers had claimed that if she pitted her unending might against the Confederacy, then darkness would fall. In her rage, she had devoured the last handful of Seers. It was a stupid name for an inferior people. The massive fleet of ships supported the last Omni-Queen oriented, ran their computations, and activated the jump drives. The system was left empty. Dreams of something more was a diplomat, and she considered herself a good one. A three-foot-high golden mantle, she had found herself leaving behind diplomacy to embark on some kind of strange quest. Following the guidance of the diplomat team seer, sees that which may or may not be. This is where her coordinates led us, Dreams asked Captain Angwok. The large Rygelian nodded from where she sat in the command chair. One elbow on her knee, her chin in her hand, posing unconsciously as she stared at the stellar system and small diplomatic fleet had arrived in. Yes, right down to the hyperspace exit vector, the captain said. She looked at Rear Admiral Loganet, who was virtually present. The Rear Admiral was down in the Fleet Combat Information Center, in the center of the ship, armored just as heavily as Dreams' own quarters. I am not sure what led us here, but we are here, the female Terran descent human said. She turned slightly, looking at someone who wasn't present on the hologram. Then back to Dreams and the Captain Angwok. The system is dead, without doubt. The holotank in the middle of the bridge flickered, the image of the fleet's twelve ships and their status vanishing to be replaced by an image of the stellar system. A half dozen planets, all barren rocks with no atmosphere, all six of them with rings, but not a single satellite. This system has been mined to oblivion, Rear Admiral Laganet said. These second and fourth planets have orbital strike evidence. How long ago? Words spoken, we fear, asked. His jet black carapace gleaming in the light. He was technically a communication specialist and a translator for dreams of something more. But when this mission had gone sideways, he'd embraced his actual profession of intelligence gathering and analysis. The rear admiral looked at another speaker, then turned back. Over a hundred million years ago, consistent with precursor autonomous war machine combat. 
words spoken with fear, who usually went by the nickname Speaks, leaned forward and looked at the image. He turned and looked at the hologram of the Admiral and the Captain both. Hey, I, I'll need to take control of the scanning system you put in place. By all means, the Admiral said, waving her hands. Of course, the Captain said. Dreams watched with a naked curiosity. It wasn't often she got to see one of the black-manned combat cars go to work, especially doing data analysis. He was examining the ancient orbital weapon strikes, laying out maps of planets, doing reconstruction work quickly and efficiently. Dreams could see the data link implant wrapped around the back of his head had all five lights burning a hard red. It gave her the shivers and reminded her that every Terran descent human had three red lights beneath the skin at the base of their skull. She made small talk with the captain and the admiral, mostly inquiring about the health and welfare of the crew. They asked about the discomfort of having to have the psychic shielding turned up so high, as well as Mr. Rings's health. Finally, after nearly two hours, Words leaned back on his own two legs and nodded to himself. It's the best I can do. I could do a better job, but it would take me a week or two of scanning, he stated. Floating in the tank was eleven planets, three of them gas, their eight planets had moons, two of them had two moons. This is an estimation based on the vapor belts, thickness of planet debris rings, and some astrophysics programs that I pulled out of the archives, Words said. Now, I can't show you the planetary orbits at the time of the attack, but I can show you which planets were hit first and which order the hits took place in. Dreams watched with fascination as the impact started registering. The moons winked out, the smaller hits from the lunar debris started pockmarking the planets, but quickly stopped. As you can see, while the orbital bodies broke up, they were quickly pounded into smaller debris, giving us these rings, he stated. Now pay particular attention to the orbital strike order and patterns. Dreams watched at the orbital strikes hit. Now, this is a rough estimation based on overlap and fusing of surface material at the bottom of these craters, Word said. The simulation went on, then suddenly stopped. Then roughly, all at once, each planet took multiple heavy hits. Three planets broke up. This was a precursor attack, but, uh, Words paused for effect. This is not just the precursor autonomous war machines making the attack. What gives you that idea? The Admiral asked. The hits, they are mathematically wasteful and imprecise. This was done to smash a civilization on various planets. Then the planets were borderline planet cracked, their atmosphere either siphoned or blown away, and the system denuded of any possible use, Word said. Captain Ungwok nodded. You're right. The early hits were sloppy. Almost random. So the system is a victim of the original precursor war, Dreams asked. More than that, Madame Diplomat, the Admiral said, her voice intent. Oh, Dreams said. This is before the AWMs rebelled against their creators. This is one of the battles where new precursors were fighting one another instead of the AWMs, the Admiral said. She looked up. When you are ready, the next hyperspace jump is ready. I'm ready, Dreams said. She turned to look at words. You? I've seen enough, words said. He shook his head. I can tell you one thing. What? Dreams asked. It wasn't a mantid world. Even after that kind of attack, there would be evidence that you and I would recognize. This was Lanaklan, or a mystery third guest, 
he said. Dreams nodded. So, we're not in the stellar systems owned by our ancestors, but they're enemies. Words nodded and moved to the elevator. We tread on the dreams of the forgotten. Dreams wanted to throw her hat at him. The train roared and vibrated as it appeared, materializing out of the circle of glowing light a few dozen meters down the tunnel. It was covered in graffiti, was rusted, dirty, and dented. It slowed to a stop, the train station appearing as the first blank wireframe. Then a monocolored construct. Thin colors and textures appeared on it as if the train came to a full stop. As steam bellowed out from under the train's debris and graffiti appeared, then the debris began moving as the steam began to flow more naturally. The doors opened and a tall figure in a trench coat stepped out, a bulky and heavy rifle in his hands, a cyberjack on a sling across his back, and a mirror shades on his eyes. He shifted his grip on his rifle and looked around. It's clear, the man said. Six others came out afterwards, before they had all sported dayglow mohawks, piercings and facial tattoos. Now their hair was cut short, their piercings removed, and their faces covered by balaclavas. They all had on trench coats lined with heavy armor. All of them had heavy weapons, and it was easy to tell that they had only the basic familiarity with them. Where are we? one asked. The old Bothan Fusion Power Incorporated Payment Processing Site, the figure said. He pointed at the bullet holes in the wall. Many Bothan Irregulars died here, holding off the smog long enough for the resistance fighters to escape. The six just nodded. Are you sure he'll come here? another asked, looking around nervously. There's not many places to take cover. He'll come, the leader said. He's been after me for a while. Can we ask why? Another one asked. The leader moved up to the thickest booth, looking down at the floor to check any nasty surprises. A long time ago, I pulled a run that resulted in me getting an important piece of data directly from Smog itself, he said. Your crash rider, another said, turning and staring. I heard you were dead. Most of us are, the figure said, also known as a gleet, answered. Two of us survived that run. How long have they been chasing you? Another asked. You crouch down here, a gleet cash rider said, dropping a device onto the ground. That'll mask you from any senses. I thought you were female, another said. I was. I had to re-roll to avoid being attracted, a gleet admitted. Back during the first war, I've done it a couple times. Hit up new U-shop, rendered my shape. I tried that. I couldn't seem to move right for a few days afterwards, one of them said. Crash Rider wasn't bothering to learn their names. Not yet. You get used to it, Crash Rider answered, shrugged. He put his hands on the wall and pushed, forcing an Alka roughly his sight into the wall to emerge as he pushed the tiles backwards. He slammed the device on the wall and turned it on. All right, you over there, get in here. They all moved to their assigned positions as Crash Rider one by one created and shielded hiding spots. Don't come out unless it goes bad, Crash Rider said. He took off his cyberjack and put it under his bench, tapping a program and making it appear as a pile of rubbish. When I give you the signal, shoot, he told the one that had given the heavy rifle to. How will you know it went bad? One asked. You'll know, Crash Riders answered. Now hush, here comes the next data back. The train rushed in and slowed to a stop. 
Crash Rider knew there was no reason to stop at this data node. It was still active only because the planet the fusion plant had been on had not been rebuilt or had any aid. The door opened and the steam bellowed out. From inside the train came a large Terran male, haircut short, heavy with muscle, wearing an old military jacket over a band t-shirt, with chains on the jeans and jacket and a heavy belt. It turned slowly, its face expressionless. When it saw Crash Rider, it reached into its jacket. Crash Rider's signal and the heavy anti-material rifle roared. The round hit the Arnie in the chest and it immediately fell to the floor as debris shot out its back. Crash Rider knelt down, slamming the device into the hand on the ground. The train station bubbled and warped, the resolution dropping for a split second as the programs loaded up in Crash Rider's deck and the device cut the outside lines except the signal dedicated line that was now processing the Arnie as well as Crash Rider and his six hirelings. The hireling on the rifle used two fingers to run the bolt on the rifle, running it slowly so that she would grab the expended shell with two fingers, and let it slowly drop to the floor on a hiding space behind the wall. She closed her eyes, listening, as she ran the bolt carrier forward, loading another round. Crash Rider ran up to the Arnie, pulling another device out of his pocket. The Arnie was already starting to derez starting to dissolve into tiny brandy-colored blocks that would spill across the tile before evaporating. He pushed his fingers into its eyes, bringing the program from the deck's memory into his onboard memory, and then running half from his onboard hardware and half from the Arnie's de-resing system. Took only a second, finishing up and burping up the answer just a heartbeat before Arnie burst into pixels and dissolved. We gotta move, Crash Rider said, standing up. He dusted the chrome pixel dust off his knees. He waited for everyone to leave their hiding places and waved for them forward, heading for one of the stairs that led upward. Why? one asked. The smog will send another one. Doesn't mind losing one. That just lets it know where I am, and that's some packing enough firepower to stop an 800 series Arnie, Crash Rider said, taking two steps at a time. It'll send the 1000 series on next. What's the difference? one of the hirelings asked shifting the grenade launcher uncomfortably. That one will require the plasma grenades you've got to even slow it down, Crash Rider said. He stopped and opened the door at the top of the stairs, revealing a white rectangle. Go through. I'll hold it open. Do not move from the ledge, he warned. He followed the last one through, feeling his stomach churn and the base of his skull ache as the program he was running took non-game system information and translated it into a game. He was standing on a balcony ledge of a ruined building. Around him were smoking buildings, burning fitfully, pouring black smoke into the air. Below the group of seven were streets that were covered in rubble. Where, uh, where are we? One of the hirelings asked. The remaining Galnet systems of a dead world, Crash Rider said. Why are we here? One of the other hirelings asked. Crash Rider knew he'd need to start asking names soon, if they survived. This is where the Arnies are coming from, he said. He turned and looked at the building. Nearly thirty stories were still there, even though the top five stories were still a burning shell. Through the broken glass, there was lacking shading and the bloom of the barely rendered room beyond. Somewhere in this world massacred by the precursors, in what's left of Galnet's infrastructure, a smog is building Arnies in a factory to follow the rules of the game. 
He stared at the room past the broken sliding glass door. It had yellow walls, beige carpet, dim fluorescence, and three open doors off of it that led into a beige carpeted rooms with yellow paint on the walls. Let's go. We've got to make it through the back rooms to get to ground level, Crash Rider said. He looked over his shoulder. Don't get separated. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.